welcome to the Isle of Faces. I am Sir Buckley and I am the host for my fellow green folk here aboard the Isle of Faces. This is part 15 of 17 of Storm of Swords and we are the scraps and scrolls for History of Restoss' Valar Rereaders project. I am speaking to you today from a still summery, if now slightly cloudy England. It's been a superb week of the sunshine for me and the puppy. I hope it's the same for all of you wherever you are. And more so than the weather, I hope you're all doing well in our current situation. I know it's tough on all in a myriad of ways and I hope the aisle can provide some comfort or distraction for you. And don't forget you can always reach out if you happen to need that little bit extra. We'd be happy to provide it. I know the temptation is real out there to start taking this thing a little less seriously. It's been going on for a while now, but remain vigilant, remain smart and remain safe. As always, a huge thank you to those of you out there on the front lines doing tough stuff. And while we're speaking of sincere gratitude, let me say hello and thank you to our beloved patrons. We were lucky enough to welcome yet more of you to our number this week, so that is always a blessing. We hope you enjoy your new benefits, and if any of you out there would like to have a look and maybe become part of our community, the link, as always, is in the episode description. Don't forget the next patron-only episode, a reading of my chapter on Storm's End from the Great Castles of Westeros, is coming up soon, so get any questions you might have about that in quickly. On top of that, patrons can expect another quick bonus episode appearing in their feed this week, but I'll keep quiet on that for now, it'll be a nice little surprise. In terms of news, before we get rolling today, I've got just two quick items. Firstly, last week I was lucky enough to make a return to the In Deep Geek YouTube channel for a special podcast. It's the first in a new series on Robert's channel where he's looking at the secrets of specific places within Westeros and he decided to kick it off with Winterfell. Lo and behold, I was invited on and we had a good old chat about everyone's favourite castle for an hour or so. It's a lot of fun, always good to talk about the castles, good to get back in the castle mood, it's been a little while. And you can find that plus about a billion other great videos over at Indie Geek on the YouTube. Make sure you subscribe and follow on Twitter and all those things. It's a lot of fun, like I say. And uh, yeah, you won't be wasting a click of the subscribe button, trust me. So yeah, go and find that if you if you care to. Second, very quickly, is the return of Sporkle Spectacular. It's been a little while thanks to scheduling and laptop charges breaking and all that stuff, but we've got there in the end. So the next episode up is Clash of Kings closing sentences, so you know it's going to be a, a little bit harder, and that episode hopefully will be with you by this weekend, midweek for our patrons if all goes well and <laughs> schedules remain tight. That should be being recorded today or tomorrow, so maybe a little bit later, but fingers crossed. Don't forget you can just use this time to go back to our first three episodes of Sanrixin, Vanessa Cole and Shakes of Thrones, have a go at those quizzes and let us know your scores, please. We love that. Okay, that's enough of the news and announcements. I think we're good to get going because we've got a lot to get through. Like I said, this is part 15 of 17 of Storm of Swords. We're so close to the end we can smell it. And there just isn't any lame chapters. There's no duds here anymore. Not that there really are through this book. And if you don't believe me, well, we've only got four chapters today. And I still have 40 pages worth of notes, nearly 25,000 words worth. So get ready for another long one here today on the aisle. Our chapters are Sansa 6, where we visit Casa de Baelish. John 9, where John commands the wall in battle, or again, you know I'm loving those at the moment. Tyrion 10, where we have the culmination of his trial and the most famous trial by combat. And finally, Daenerys 6, where we wave goodbye to our queen as she enters Marine and decides what to do with her two knights. So I think you can probably tell just from that there's a lot to get through and some truly great chapters. Personally... I like today's Sansa's edition, the least of the four, and that's nothing against Sansa. It's just I really struggled writing notes for it because there's just so much Littlefinger. You've got to wade through the Littlefinger-ishness, which I don't like doing. But other than that, you already know how much I love John and Daenerys in this book. Those two arcs are some of my favourites. 
and our big three is complete with a Tyrion wedged in the middle that is just bursting with content, it is a big one. We'd probably best begin. Let's start off then with Sansa 6. Welcome to Creepsville. Population, you and me, apparently. In what is just our second ever non-King's Landing Sansa chapter ever, and remember that first one didn't end too great back in Game of Thrones, we find out that the hope Sansa has held in her heart since the fall of Eddard Stark still hasn't actually come true with her escape from King's Landing. Sansa has almost exclusively been a prisoner to us for so long. She has suffered horrific abuse at the hands of multiple Lannisters and their cronies, so this should be a happy occasion that she's got, got away, right? Surely anything would be better than the Red Keep. Well, anyone who got past the end of her last chapter and still thought that has clearly not been paying attention to Peter. Let me show you why I started a civil war because my house isn't that nice, Baelish. And as if he wasn't enough to make this chapter dark and daunting, we also find out that even the long-held hope of a reunion with a family member isn't a mark of safety. And, worst of all, the threat of sexual assault is present no matter how far you are from Joffrey's memory. And it's actually that theme of sexual assault or predatory men Essentially, the idea that Sansa is now more vulnerable, not less, that we start with, with Sansa taking a clear look at Lothal Broom. It's the first quote of the day. Sansa accepted a hand up from Lothal Broom. Sir Lothar, she had to remind herself. The man had been knighted for his valour in the Battle of the Blackwater. Though no proper knight would wear those patched brown breeches and scuffed boots, nor that cracked and water-stained leather jerkin. And then a little bit later, he is stronger than he looks though. She could tell by the ease of which he lifted her, as if she weighed nothing at all. Rereaders will find this interesting given the saviour role Lothar was going to play at the end of the chapter and how that relates to him acting knightly despite him not looking the part. What knights look like and what they actually are has been a huge part of Sansa and Aya's storyline so it feels pretty key to bring it up in the first paragraph. The caveat to that is we've got no idea about whether Lothal Brune is knightly at the end of the chapter or if he's just being paid by Littlefinger and couldn't care less about Sansa. He's just the first of the near faceless Littlefinger crew we're going to meet in this chapter. But that is very much the point. Things of this nature aren't clearer outside the political arena of King's Landing. You still can't trust people's true motivations, and especially for a teen girl like Sansa, you're still at the mercy of people like this. The ease of which he lifts her makes me think specifically on Sansa's discovered agency that she had in the last two chapters suddenly being completely stolen from her again, but we will return to Lothal Brune when the time comes later on. The first part of the journey from King's Landing is hard for Sansa physically, but emotionally as well. She's still haunted by visions of Joffrey's death, She's obviously very confused and her future is completely up in the air. She's been in the Red Keep for a very long time and though it's hardly been a comfortable stay, there's a level of stability in being the same, in the same place all the time. She's essentially out in the wild now with only one person she's ever met before. And of course, she's frazzled and sick about Joffrey and Tyrion, but tragically, there's still hope there. The bombshell hasn't been dropped yet about where she's going, although we won't have to wait too long. But the main point of this chapter is we've got some fingers to be looking at. No, not the Davos kind. All fans of the Davos Fingers podcast know this would be a way better chapter if that were true. Unfortunately, instead, it's Cassid of Baelish, like I mentioned at the top. Before we quite get there though, Sansa thinks back on the choppy journey she's had, and we've got a few things to point out here. First is the mention of storms. Good link to the name of the book, sure, but also a reminder of those changing seasons. The coming of autumn, and specifically the storms the season brings, will be much more of a focus and feast, but we've definitely been able to track the mentions of such increases throughout the book. She also mentions two men being swept overboard, and I simply can't stop making even the most tenuous links between the Stark sisters. Recall, a man was swept overboard in Arya's crossing of the Trident in Arya 9, so I just love these little connections here. Also, I want to point out Sansa is sailing the narrow sea and braving these autumn storms before it becomes cool. We've had people sailing up and down here and there in early Game of Thrones, and some minor characters in Clash, but Sansa really opens the floodgates. From this point, we'll soon have Stannis and Davos sailing all the way north, 
Aya making her crossing to Bravos, Sam and Gilly and Aemon going south, and then Fake Aegon and the Golden Company making their landing in the Stormlands, as well as a whole bunch more smaller characters darting all over the place. In fact, so far in terms of sailing chapters, we've had relatively few, with like one early Fion and some late Clash Davos. This could hardly be turned a sailing chapter, but Sansa is on a boat, and soon we'll have a bunch of them too with Sam and the Ironborn, etc. So Sansa Stark equals trendsetter so far. So as the boat is approaching land, we get, yeah, the visit from this guy again. The stunted slime, the curdled milk, whatever you want to call him. Peter Baelish is back, everybody. Unfortunately, he's here to stay for this chapter and this arc as we're going. And I think this is just part of the grand build-up for his character at the end. He was present for so much of game and kind of parts of Clash, but he's also been absent for a long, long time. For first-time readers especially, his influence doesn't seem so large as it actually is. That's kind of one of those things you find out on rereading. We've spent plenty of time with him or discussing him, but it still pales in comparison with the direct look we'll be getting from here on out. This is a different era of Littlefinger. And given the huge reveal George has planned for the final chapter, he obviously wants Littlefinger to be built up even more, hence this chapter. So we're presented with him being able to plot Joffrey's death. That's the big thing. We had that last chapter. Now we're getting the idea of him miraculously dragging himself up from a single tower and some rocks to a great lord, which he happens to mention here to help us along. Later on, we'll have his next great leap up the ladder with Lysa, so it's all getting there. Yes, this is the curtain twitching aside so we can see what is actually behind the cunning, influential person we are dealing with. And to be honest, all of this just goes to annoy me more. Coming from this bland place that he loves to be sarcastic about surely only fuels Peter's already billowing impression of himself. I can see him, again, stood in front of that mirror, telling himself how great he is for scrounging himself up from such a horrible place. Yes, we must always use the horrible place as a reminder why we do the horrible things we do. You would do horrible things too if the alternative was living here, apparently. Ooh, self-serving bullshit again. The part I like best about the fingers is how its geography is a perfect reflection of Peter's actual personality. It's bland. It's nothing. Peter Baelish is an act. The man himself is an empty vessel. Yes, it's early in the chapter and I'm getting wound up already. Another quote here. It is a rare thing for a boy born heir to stones and sheep pellets to wed the daughter of Hoster Tully and the widow of John Aaron. See, this is what I mean. You can just hear him writing his own compliments about it. Anyway, anyway, before we get to that Lysa thing, we get another quick note here in that Baelish knows about the Tysha story for Tyrion. That's pretty interesting. How common is the knowledge of Tyrion's first wife? Earlier on, we were given the impression that almost no one knew and it was a deeply buried secret. But it at least makes sense that Littlefinger would know, being Littlefinger. So is it a whispered rumour at the court that people don't bring up in the company of lions? Or is it specific information that Peter has sought out in case he ever needs it? In terms of how the information would get across from the rock, none of Tyrion, Jaime or Tywin are going to be spreading the word. But you could absolutely believe Cersei telling Peter. And of course, we've got no knowledge about any Lannister servants coming over with the household and spreading the story. You just can't track that kind of thing. Let's get back to the big news. This is quote. I, I pray you will have long years together and many children and be very happy in one another. It had been years since Sansa last saw her mother's sister. She will be kind to me for my mother's sake, surely. She is my own blood and a veil of Aaron of beautiful. All the songs said so. Perhaps it would not be so terrible to stay here for a time. So Peter doesn't waste long in dropping the bombshell about them not going home and he does it in a classic, subtle, Peter Baelish way that's intended to keep Sansa off base and in his grip. What I mean by that is him going through the reasons for not going north, about Winterfell being burned and ruined, etc. P.S. I wonder how he knows about the attack on the wall. That's interesting. And he makes it sound as though it's the most obvious thing in the world that they wouldn't be going north. This is a superbly efficient way to keep Sansa compliant and quiet. She can't make a fuss without making it seem like she is a foolish girl who didn't realise what was going on, in her mind anyway. But then he follows that up with incredibly surprising, out of the blue news about him and Lysa getting married. 
that is obviously intended to further knock Sansa off her feet and distract her from the news she's just heard. As far as manipulation and persuasive argumentative speech goes, Baelish is quite brilliant in that regard. And it works. Sansa barely flinches at the news of not going home, instead remembering her courtesy straight away because those are her rock and her armour and to forget them would be terrible for all involved. A lot of that is Peter Baelish's speech, but I think we should also give Sansa some credit for having this type of bravery and optimism still. As we heard in the quote, even with her dream being crushed and the confusing news about her aunt, Sansa tries to find hope in both reunion with Lysa and the beauty of the veil itself. Rereaders know how the former is going to turn out, for the latter, we'll still have to wait for winds to truly know. Once we actually get to shore, we meet the household of the fingers, and it really, truly bothers me, again, that Baelish seemingly has loyal staff who actually seem to quite like him. We know for a fact he does not deserve such. He deserves a nest of vipers as callous and clawing as he. Not a happy little bunch who seem content with their lot. And obviously, we hardly know the true nature of these people, but that's how it's presented to us for now. Clearly, it's part of his charm and charisma playbook, but it still really gets to me. There's almost this sense that he manipulates, abuses them, for lack of a better term. He knows they're loyal, but he's just kind of mean about it with his subtle and not-so-subtle jabs. He's also very clear about how he views such people. I think it makes perfect sense that this single tower of his is literally just one level on top of the other, with the servant sleeping beneath the master alongside the dogs. That is very Peter Baelish, and all of this is also just an expansion on the Littlefinger Empire idea. We've spoken before about how he's waged war of a different kind, buying off people in key positions, but positions too low for any of the lords to take note of, because they've got no idea how the sausage gets made. So this is just more of the payroll being revealed to us. We'll have the same in a few moments with Oswell and the Kettleback reveal. It's like a sure but slow fingerprint becoming clearer over all the ins and outs of King's Landing. Once you're inside, we get this quote. Above the hearth hung a broken longsword and a battered oaken shield, its paint cracked and flaking. I wonder if these were the specific sword and shield used against the Ninepenny Kings on the step zones. Maybe they were broken defending Hoster Tully and thereby sending Peter on his life path to River Run and all that happened after. We also get the story of him changing his grandfather's sigil, which buys into this whole idea of him just being unappreciative of his family history and his home, as we've just seen from the interactions with the servants. He mocks it, he hates it, he thinks it's not good enough for him. That's not to say the Fingers is an actually nice place, it's not, but the Peter Baelish believing himself above and more deserving of what his family gave him matches perfectly with his spoilt and entitled personality. The wine was very fine, an arbor vintage, she thought. It tasted of oak and fruit and hot summer nights, the flavours blossoming in her mouth like flowers opening to the sun. She only prayed she could keep it down. Lord Peter was being so kind, she did not want to spoil it all by retching on him. He was studying her over his own goblet, his bright grey-green eyes full of... Was it amusement? Or something else? Sansa was not certain. This quote, still at the beginning of this little scene in the little tower, goes to show that all Littlefinger's plans and structured words are working. Lord Peter was being so kind. Already, she feels like he's being a true friend, that she doesn't want to ruin anything or appear ungrateful. It's another moment where we want to reach through the page and make her understand what's actually going on. And it makes complete sense why she feels this way, as we've just outlined a minute ago. But that doesn't make it any easier to watch what happens as the fingers wrap ever tighter around our beloved Sansa. A side note is this description of the wine, a good arbor vintage, described in a very positive light with all the connotations of summer and sun and good things. I bring that up because it's also made a note of that the Merlin King, the ship they were travelling on, it's a bunch of fresh fruit on board that they eat next. I wonder if George includes all these colours and bursting fruit flavours just to offset the dismal discolouring of the fingers themselves, or whether it's a sign of his recent deals with the Tyrells, and this just being some extra kickback that was thrown in. The wine is from the arbour, after all. Incidentally, I've got no idea if Peter genuinely believes wine is a good stomach settler, or healer of steel sickness, or whether he just wants to get some alcohol in his victim's blood system. I know which way I would lean to in the, if I had to guess. 
And last little note for this quote, and Sansa even recognising she's being creeped upon by noticing Peter Baelish staring at her. She just doesn't know what to call it. Again, sickening stuff, but we'll round up more of those creepy specifics when we come to it. To read an overview of this chapter, it can easily seem like Sansa is just kind of along for the ride. She gets taken to this weird place, she'll be surprised by her aunt in a minute, and is on hand to witness yet another wedding between Peter Baelish and Lysa Aaron. It's not quite in keeping with the big step forwards in plot that John or Davos or Tyrion are receiving at a similar time, although it is in keeping with Arya's seemingly stunted journey per last week's episode. All of that is wrong because the point of this small tower scene is actually a huge part of Sansa's journey going forward, the birth of Elaine Stone. If Sansa Stark should be seen in the Vale, the eunuch will know of a moon's turn, and that will create unfortunate complications. It is not safe to be a Stark just now, so we shall tell Lysa's people that you are my natural daughter. Natural? Sansa was aghast. You mean a bastard? The idea of being a bastard highlights some of Sansa's old and not the best views about natural children and their place in the world. Of all she inherited from Catelyn, this might be the worst trait, but we shouldn't be too quick to throw Sansa in the bear trap just yet. No, her bastard reviews aren't her best feature, but I feel like a part of this is also worry about the abandonment of the Stark name and a reduction in her worth. Yes, she also worries that she is being lowered a class, but as far as Sansa knows, she is now the only Stark left in the world. If she agrees not to be one, she might see it as an insult to the memory of those who so recently died. Not only that, but she's been told over and over by people such as Dontos that her only worth is her surname, so the suggestion of giving that up is understandably troubling. What will she be without it? We can actually make the argument that this will help Sansa in the long run, as much as it horrifies her now. We're skipping ahead a bit, but in Feast, we'll find a Sansa much more comfortable and confident, who gets on with the jobs at hand and really feels more useful, and a portion of that is that she is Elaine Stone and not Sansa Stark. It's freeing for her, as is the false notion that she is no longer surrounded by enemies or in immediate danger, but still. Not only that, but it will eventually go to changing her views as she starts subconsciously thinking of Jon in a better light, and essentially, it just gives her a bit of a more balanced worldview when she separates from the only role she's ever known as a highborn daughter. Sansa, because she's Sansa, will end up turning this into a strength as well. I think will remain a major part of her personality when she eventually publicly returns to being Sansa Stark. It's just unfortunate that right now, it happens to play right into Peter's isolation game. On the happier side, it's another link to Aya, which you know I enjoy. The loss of identity, the changing of names, it's all there for both sisters. And of course, as many have noted, in the next book, Aya will assume the name Cat. And while Sansa was denied her first choice, she was given Elaine. So we have Cat, Elaine, Cat, Elaine. I only bring this up because it's one of those great finds that probably should be obvious, but bypasses certain individuals for some reason. And I was one of those people. I didn't realise that at all until it was pointed out to me like on my last reread, so you've all got something on me there. Next quote, uh, not, not as fun this one. It'll be like playing a game, won't it? Are you fond of games, Elaine? The new name would take some getting used to. Games? I, I suppose it would depend. Oh, it's absolutely, positively sickening. If you are unfortunate enough to have had to look closely at many, many cases of abuse of children, both younger and older than Sansa at this point, and sexual abuse especially, you'll know that a huge part of it is framing these events as playing games. Now I'm not going to go any further down that particularly dark subject, but this line in particular sticks out as horrific to me. If I was ever going to put these books down for anything we've covered so far, it might be because of this point, because I just... I hate him so much. It's either that or the Jane Paul talk in Game of Thrones, both of which happen to involve this guy. And that creepiness theme, it's, it's all over the whole chapter. I wasn't really sure where to fit this in because it's just happening throughout, but he's very physical. He's very physical with Sansa. He's too close. He comes into her room. He's, he's doing the touch and he puts his arm around her. It's just creepy. He's not a relation. He doesn't really know Sansa. 
this is like the third time they've ever spoken and they never this close. He's doing it because he can. There's no one to tell him no now, like we spoke before. Sansa's protectors have been removed. There's no Tyrion. There's obviously no Ned. He can do what he likes and the, the just implications of that. Uh, I don't really want to talk about it, but it's horrible. It just makes me sick. Ugh. Just go back and look. It really is just kind of there through the whole chapter and it's going to it's going to get worse as we go. So, yeah, just prepare your stomachs, I guess. From here, we enter moustache-twirling territory of Peter Baelish. Not so much in the how-did-I-do-it-here's-my-evil-plan variety, although there are elements of that. No, he just wants to talk strategy with someone. He wants to talk the Peter Baelish philosophy. When we get down to it, he wants to talk about himself. We've already seen this half a hundred times in the earlier books. This guy is 110% ego. So here's this girl who has zero choice but to sit and listen to you and who you know will hang on your every word. What better time is there to spout off some bollocks and analogies about keeping your hands clean and all these other lessons if you want to call them that. If you've ever seen a young teen interact with a preteen or a preteen with an 8 or 9 year old, that's how they'll often act. Those 1 or 2 years extra experience in the world, those 3 or 4 extra inches of height, they make them feel like a complete class above, that they're a whole different subspecies. And now here's a younger person who doesn't have those things yet, so looks at you like you're a celebrity. What better chance to indulge and show off before those younger folk catch up to you? That's all Peter Baelish is, he's a preteen trying to show off, talking to someone who is younger in age and in terms of skill, but who in my mind is going to far surpass him before the sun sets on this story. Much as I despise this human mildew, his analysis of Cersei is not only enjoyable, but dead on, here's the quote. Cersei for one. She thinks herself sly, but in truth she is utterly predictable. Her strength rests on her beauty, birth and riches. Only the first of those is truly her own. They will soon desert her. I pity her then. She wants power, but has no notion what to do with it when she gets it. This is another little tease of the feast to come, when perhaps the defining power of that book is being in Cersei's head for stumble to stumble, with her calling each one a victory worthy of her father. More to the point, I like Littlefinger's technique of identifying a person's strengths, tracing those strengths back to their original sources, and then matching all this against a person's true motivations. I feel that this is a step further than most Westerosi lords will bother with. For the majority, it's look how many swords they can call and arrange them that way. Hence, why Littlefinger himself is often overlooked. Matching these particular motivations and strengths of how well a particular person will play a particular role seems to be Baelish's go-to for getting things done. That's how he explains to Dontos, it's how he categorises the Cattleblacks when he summons Oswell, and we get the full reveal on those guys, it's how he comes to talk about the Tyrells. Basically, Baelish is in the business of knowing people. He has these strategies, weighs up the risks of placing them in certain roles, and goes from there. Before we move on to the Tyrells, let's give the Kettleblacks their moment. So we feel like we forget their involvement with Littlefinger when we talk about the future of King's Landing, and I had certainly thought on Littlefinger singling Osmond out as being out of reach because he's now in the Kingsguard, and receiving a payment Peter can't afford. Just to remind you, here's the current scenario for each Kettleblack as of the end of Dance. So we have Osney, the youngest, has been tortured by the High Sparrow and is a prisoner in the Sept of Baelor. He's marked for execution for killing the previous High Septon. Usefulness for Littlefinger? Well, he knows a whole bunch about Cersei, as they all do, but he also knows about Marjorie and the Faith, but looks doubtful he'll live long enough to use it. We have Osfried, the second youngest. He was briefly Lord Commander of the City Watch until Cersei's fall. He now resides in a dungeon, awaiting either the Wall or a trial by combat. Usefulness to Littlefinger? Well, Baelish has been known to use the City Watch to his ends before, so that's a useful connection, should Osfried rise again. Finally, Osmond, the eldest, the one we know best. He's in the exact same dungeon, awaiting the exact same choice. He might have been useful to Littlefinger as a member of the Kingsguard, but not so much now. And if you want to believe, Peter has had connections with the Kingsguard before, depending on what your view of uh, Manda Moore is, but Osmond not in so great a position. Then again, desperate men might be more willing to reconnect with their old boss, and they certainly have enough dirt to dish about Cersei that Littlefinger would want to know. But 
Let's go find out, I guess. We get more of the Littlefinger playbook in the passage on his visit to Highgarden, where he lines how, how basically what he has over everyone else is attention to detail in terms of spreading rumours via his men and hiring singers to plant seeds. This all sounds very intelligent and cunning and pretty damn expert if you actually believe it worked. Perhaps it did, but for all we know, Mason Loras had already hoped for something like the Kingsguard to come up. After all, Loras had already been part of the Rainbow Guard for Renly, so I think Baelish taking credit for introducing the entire concept of the Knight of Flowers is a bit premature. While his subtle way of spreading the truth about Joffrey without ever saying anything treasonous is a little more impressive, while Lena was already asking questions, so Peter's slice of the pie isn't as big as he'd have you believe. Still, again, it just shows Peter understanding the ins and outs, how information is gathered, how the medium of song and idea of chivalry will appeal more to the Tyrells than anyone else. He just puts in more research. It's also great to get the lowdown on Elena being that much of a forward thinker, and how much of the green thumbed reins she handles compared to Mace. Final quote for this tower room scene, back to Sansa. At least I am safe here. Joffrey is dead. He cannot hurt me anymore. And I am only a bastard girl now. Elaine Stone has no husband and no claim, and her aunt would be here as soon as well. The long nightmare of King's Landing was behind her, and a mockery of her marriage as well. She could make herself a new home here, just as Peter said. So, hooray, Sansa can still find it within herself to be hopeful. Boo, this is all exactly as Littlefinger wants it. Fast forward eight days to the return of Lysa, and we also get a rising friendship of Sansa and the old blind dog. It's impossible not to feel some pretty clear emotions when you think about Sansa and Lady here, as she will note herself later on. The return of Lysa is a pretty major moment, even if we ignore what is to come for her. She was a major influencer on the starting events of the war, and again, that's just taking what we know, not what we will find out soon at the end of this book, as well as on Catelyn and on Tyrion's arcs. Yet, she's been completely removed from the story for the past two books now. It's a timely return, given the decimation of Tully's in this book alone. Hoster and Catelyn are gone, we still don't even really know Edmure's situation, only that it's not good. And for first-time readers, it sounds like the Blackfish's back is really up against the wall and he won't last long either. So what we have before us is essentially the last free-roaming Tully, and the introduction is... it's not great. Lysa wasn't in the best physical state back when Catelyn saw her, but it seems like she's been indulging and enjoying suitor gifts ever since. Seems George is almost trying to draw a straight comparison between Lysa's physicality and the fact that she's a, a worse version of Catelyn, if you want to use that in quote marks. Now, we shouldn't base that on her body type alone, but she's also arriving with this sickly sweet way of talking that reminds us how she treated Catelyn, how she really made the war worse, and left Rob out on a limb when he reached out for help. The Red Wedding surely would have never happened with the Knights of the Vale involved, I'm confident of that. This is also a contrast. This arrival description might be geared to get us against Lysa, but also remember that since the last time we saw her, we've learned of Hoster's great crime and abuse against her in her youth. Now we have to be flooded with sympathy and pity for this poor woman, so there's a real mix of emotions here, but really up and down. Unless ignoring that Sans was finally reunited with a member of her family, because everyone else is ignoring it for the moment. Here's a quote from Lysa. Yon Royce has been stirring up all sorts of trouble, demanding that I call my banners and go to war. And the others all swarm around me, Hunter and Corbray and that dreadful Nestor Royce, all wanting to wed me and take my son to ward. But none of them truly love me. Only you, Peter. I dreamed of you for so long. So some mental points for Yon Royce before we re-meet him later. We learn that Lysa is not having so nice as a time of it as she was before, and actually doesn't like all the suitors she once adored. But we also get the part of the puzzle that wasn't shared with Catelyn, the desire for Peter Baelish. The desire is so strong that even if Baelish is the master of reading people and future planning, no one can account for human nature and desires when Lysa demands that they are wedded now. It's noted at one point that Lysa giggles like a girl. It's not just giggling, it's the way she talks, demands, threatens and teases. All of it is akin to a toddler demanding its own way. But essentially what we see here is a grown-up sweet Robin. No need for guessing where he gets it from. 
her near obsession of Peter and just the way she talks. She kind of reminds me of a, a Janice from Friends in this episode where she just pops up and you're like, oh, no, not this person again. So from there, we'll whisk away to what is the A Song of Ice and Fire version of eloping as we get a wedding without murders and with two willing participants for once. Yet even with that, the result still manages to be one of the creepiest and most uncomfortable parts of all of Song of Ice and Fire. I will now quote Lysa's sexy talk in full. Alright, alright, I won't. I'll spare you that. But you guys are on notice. Step out of line and I'll start reading exactly what she said. I know you know what I'm talking about. The wedding itself is of little note right now, and Sansa obviously isn't thinking on the larger implications. For Peter Baelish, we know this is a rather huge rung on his famous ladder that he's just passed. He now has access to the Vale as well as Harrenhal and the Riverlands. That's fine and dandy for right now, but it's also a big day for his past. He was months meant to inherit just this little tower and all its sheep. Now he's marrying a member of the great families. It's an ultimate thumb to Hoster Tully as well, marrying the daughter whom Hoster would rather severely abuse than allow to have Littlefinger's child. And for Lysa, well, I think it's quite clear that her obsession and dreams of 20 years of age have all just come true. This is what it was all for. The poisoning, the letters, the starting of the war, everything we don't really know about yet. Everything just for this one man, and she has bagged her prize. But Sansa, especially, is not to know any of that just yet. The last few weddings she's been involved with included her being bundled up into a family she hated, her own family being murdered, and then her tormentor dying and her having to escape. Very, very positive feedback from Lysa isn't going to make the idea of the weddings much better, so Sansa takes a quick break. When she returns, we are also returned to Marillion, a long ago forgotten character from Tyrion and Catelyn's POVs. He didn't give us much of a reason to like him then, but gives plenty to despise him now. The assault on Sansa comes out of the blue and is incredibly sobering for both her and us. This, this isn't supposed to happen anymore. She's supposed to have escaped. She's no longer in the Red Keep. Joffrey's dead for Pete's sake. This is everything she and we have dreamt of for so long, but no, there's no real safety. It turns out men are evil everywhere. In fact, Sansa comes into more danger and more horrifying language than she's arguably experienced before. Thankfully, Sir Lofer is on hand to save Sansa, whatever the root cause of his motivation is, and we are left hating Marillion, and personally quite happy with his eventual fate. Of the hundreds of reasons to be upset about Sansa being attacked, one of them is that this is just something else to make her rely on Littlefinger and want to stick closer to him. What would have happened without Sir Lothal present? But then, it wasn't Sir Lothal that Sansa instinctually wanted, was it? It was the Hound, which is another aspect of misconnections that he could have eventually re-met Sansa at the Eyrie if he and Aya had got through the high road. Sandor again makes another appearance in Sansa's dream that night, the one that focuses on her protectors during her time in King's Landing. Tyrion was supposed to be in that role as her husband, and actually was more before they were married. Sandor was in that role physically during the mob riots and at other times also. Clearly, she was thinking on what might have been if she had gone with him. She'd be safe that way, but safe from everyone, says Sandor Cagains. Very 50-50. Moving past the dream, this long chapter ends with Sansa now officially meeting her aunt, with all the trimmings removed and all the cards on the table. I think George goes out of his way to make a point about Lysa eating while she talks. Puts us in the mind of a glutton, of a woman who's had access to food all through the saga, while we've visited various stages of starvation across Westeros from the Riverlands to King's Landing. It reminds us of her leaving everyone else to do the suffering and gets right on our bad side. But, again, she counteracts that because she reminds us of how she was essentially sold to John Aaron for some swords and so soon after what Hoster did to her. So the sympathy comes back again, back to the peaks and valleys. Last quote of this chapter, A man will tell you poison is dishonourable, but a woman's honour is different. So that's a, a nice little hint of what's to come in uh, Sansa's next chapter and final chapter. But for Sansa, what Lysa has to say is just more of the same. The escape, the fingers, all this new stuff, and it turns out nothing has really changed. She still just wanted for a surname in the end. She's still just something to be married off to someone else. It's just now she's being stashed in the pocket instead of being shown off on the mantelpiece. 
It's so annoying. She's so weary of it all. But what other choice does she have? And then that's the end of the chapter. That's the, that's it, really. So you can see why well, I'm not the biggest fan of this, just because don't like Baelish, don't like Lysa. Not much good happens to Sansa here. But as I say, she will discover how to turn these current losses and current weaknesses into strengths coming later. And it does lead up to monumental chapter. I mean, it's got to be one of the top five most important chapters in the series in Sansa's next and final chapter in a couple of weeks' time. For now, let's move on up back to the wall to John 9, one I enjoy just a little bit more. So we go from a slow burn of a chapter with Sansa and the Fingers right back into action of battle with John and the Wall. Although what we actually find to start off with is that the fighting has been going on for so long now, it's become a lifestyle for the Night's Watch, with its own routine and drudgery. We'll be back at critical points of battle and major futures being decided before long, but for now we open on the new reality for the Watch. Day and night the axes rang. John could not remember the last time he had slept. When he closed his eyes, he dreamed of fighting. When he woke, he fought. And later, no one spoke. They were all too tired for talk. Few of them ever left the wall these days. It took too long to ride up and down in the cage. Castle Black had been abandoned to Mace Draymond, Sir Winton Stout, and a few others too old or ill to fight. So dawn to dusk for the Night's Watch is now consumed with one thing, keeping the wildlings back. But it's akin to keeping a tap on to fill a bucket with a hole in it. They aren't actually making any progress. Mance isn't going anywhere. They aren't killing many wildlings, but they still have to keep at it or another charge could break them and all could be lost. It's constant, it's exhausting, and after a while it becomes mind-numbing. It's tough to keep focus in such an environment. So John's first challenge as the man in charge isn't anything to do with swords or fighting, but just keeping morale up. This is a thankless task where discipline could easily wane, and we have to make the point again, the majority of these men are not soldiers. To relax for even an hour could mean certain defeat. There's a few ways to counteract this, allowing the betting on which straw sentinel will collect the most arrows, for example. But for the most part, John's decrees on sleeping on top of the wall and actually making people sleep and rest seem to be working. For now, the watchers all brought into what Jon Snow is selling. What percentage of that mix is uh, loyalty or necessity, that's irrelevant right now. The daily routine and the near normalcy of it all is shown on the other side as well when John is looking through the mirrorish lens. The wild things get up, make their breakfast and get ready for another day taking a stab at the wall. Both sides have settled into this uneasy tension, almost like the wildlings on the watch are actually having an arm wrestle, with both hands still stuck high at midnight. They can't push any further just yet, but if either lets up even a little, it could be game over. Still, there are attempts at making a push, as moves and counter moves. The fury of the earlier battle and the charge of the giants has been replaced for now by the world's longest distance, height-wise anyway, Savas game. I'm assuming that's how you say that, I don't know if it's come up yet. I'm going with Savas. Mant sends out his archers beneath mantlets, these sliding wooden shields. It's something new, why not try it? John counters with fire arrows, so this time Mance wraps the mantlet in animal hides. So John just stops people from leaning over the edge so much. This move, this counter move, it's slow but exhausting and imperative. Those hands have to be kept straight up at midnight, until... Well, until what? Because here's the kick of this early chapter, a sense of growing dread. There is no until, no good kind anyway. Here's a quote. Bo and Marsh had chased the wildlings all the way to the Shadow Tower, it seemed, and then farther, down into the gloom of the gorge. At the Bridge of Skulls he had met the Weeper and 300 wildlings and won a bloody battle, but the victory had been a costly one. So a victory, that's good news, but is the victory for the Watch or for Mance? His multi-attack strategy has worked. Not only was the main garrison of Castle Black drawn away from the gate Mance wants to go through, but their numbers have been thinned and they've been delayed as a relief force. No help is coming, our favourite hodgepodges are on their own despite the wishful dreams of Owen the Oath. I had a dream that the king had come, Owen said happily. Maester Eamon sent a raven, and King Robert came with all his strength. 
I dreamed I saw his golden banners. This is a nice one for rereaders to take a smirk on. We like Owen, he's a good guy who does his duty and is very pro-John, but has spoken very little of how he maybe has a touch of the foresight, even if he gets a bit of the details wrong. Maybe it's just a lucky guess, who knows. Either way, John and the others scout it and the dread remains. There is no one coming, no second hand to help them win the arm wrestle. And guess what? Their arm is looking way more tired than Mance's. Their oil was all but gone, and the last barrel of pitch had been rolled off the wall two nights ago. They would soon run short of arrows as well, and there were no Fletchers making more. John and his men know that they really aren't playing for a victory anymore. This is a run-the-clock-out type of situation. They've nearly run out of stuff to drop off the wall, and soon their arrows will go too. Once that happens, what are they to do? Dread, dread, dread. John knows the score, so he dispatches Zay, or Zai, still not sure, to Molestown for help. The Night's Watch protected them from Stir, after all. But instead of help, they receive abandonment. And even John wonders if that was the smart choice, because it's starting to really, really look like it. And we should point out, it's kind of amazing how John doesn't have to deal with more potential deserters at this time. That abandonment, still, lowers the mood even further. But not near so much as what the watchers on the wall can all see being built. Mance's arm is tensing. They are ready for a push, and it's coming in the form of a turtle. Is the quote. That will be coming very soon as well. The wildlings had skinned one of the dead mammoths during the night, and they were lashing the raw, bloody hide over the turtle's roof. One more layer on top of the sheepskins and pelts. The turtle had a rounded top and eight huge wheels, and under the hides was a stout wooden frame. When the wildlings had begun knocking it together, Satin thought they were building a ship. Not far wrong. The turtle as a whole turned upside down and opened fore and aft, a long haul on wheels. Firstly, I just want to know how George keeps coming up with new aspects of this war warfare. This is basically the third iteration of this chapter we're getting now, and he's still coming up with new and interesting stuff. It's just a joy to watch him do his thing. But more to the point, we get more dread. I know I'm harping on and on with that word, but it's true. Not being able to see the enemy in John's last chapter brought its own type of horror. But this is another, as the Night's Watch gets to sit and, well, watch, as their doom is constructed in front of them. The Nourish lens and their general viewpoint allows John to tie the two ends of his storm arc together. He was in this very same camp back in his first chapter. He was in that tent mating Dalla and Val. He was making friends with Tormund, warily watching Varamir. It's a great reminder of all the players in the Wilding camp, as well as setting up a few future storylines in terms of Dalla's child and what happens to Varamir. But it's definitely important to John. But all that is nothing compared to the construction of the turtle. Both sides are aware. This thing is everything. It's the focus of everyone. As John lays out for us, if it gets against the wall, it allows all the opportunity in the world and the wildings beneath to get through the half-repaired gate. And if that happens, then these old men and green boys are going to have to go steel to steel against ravenous wildlings down in the dark and the cold. John once fought an attack on Castle Black as a red slaughter. That'd be a kind way of putting what would happen down in that tunnel. Hence, when it starts rolling out of the forest, every man knows this turtle is 100% critical. This is it. John needs to have his one big moment where Donald had two before him. So vast games are finished, we're down in the mud again. The heart gets pumping when the turtle comes, but we don't have the same rousing speeches as last time. Instead, it's big, Horse said. Pip smacked his lips. Think of the soup it will make. The joke was stillborn. Even Pip sounded tired. He looks half dead, thought John, but so do we all. The king beyond the wall had so many men that he could throw fresh attackers at them every time. But the same handful of black brothers had to meet every assault, and it had worn them ragged. Again, it's that war of attrition, attrition of arrows, of oil, of pitch, of decent sleep. This is the watch with their back up against the wall, if you'll forgive the pun. And while the defenders are tired and ragged, we as readers are all abuzz at this new battle. Satin, Horse, and the others were looking to him, John knew, waiting for his orders. He was so tired, he hardly knew any more. The wall is mine, he reminded himself. Facts and numbers and tiredness aren't going to help anyone in this situation. John knows he has to lead. 
even if it is with futile gestures, as he calls them. To do nothing means death. To do something and fail is both a more glorious end and the best way to keep these men from breaking. They've stayed loyal throughout all this. John has to pay them back by giving them someone to follow and rally behind. And he comes through. But this gives Mance's planning credit, because John's beginning gestures really are futile. The fire arrows do nothing to the turtle's pelt. The scorpion bolts and tiny rocks do nothing more than superficial damage. The trebuchets are a mute point by now. Their end, the night watch's end, creeps closer and closer, and George ratchets that tension up step by step. Again, it's masterful. We've had the fury of the giants. We've had the creeping of Stir and his men before the blaze of the switchback stare. This is something different entirely. The enemy is out in the open. It's big, it's slow. They can hit it all they want, but they can't stop it. The end is coming. The wilding arm of this arm wrestle is bulging. Next quote. Once the wildings got it flush against the wall, it would give them all the shelter they needed while their axes crashed through the hastily repaired outer gates. Inside, under the ice, they would clear the loose rubble from the tunnel in a matter of hours, and then there would be nothing to stop them but two iron gates, a few half-frozen corpses, and whatever brothers John cared to throw in their path, to fight and die down in the dark. The first-time reader really has no idea how we're going to stop this, what John's last stand will actually look like, so our hearts are really going by the time George gives us the dramatic moment of the true defence finally being mounted. Their only hope was to try and crush the turtle when it reached the wall. For that, they needed boulders. No matter how stoutly built the turtle was, a huge chunk of rock crashing straight down on top of it from 700 feet was bound to do some damage. Gren, Owen, Kegs, it's time. If we give credit to Mance, let's give credit to Jon Snow for dreaming up the wall's defence in its hour of need, because I sure as hell wouldn't have thought to make these little frozen rocks out of the barrels, some gravel and a bit of cold water. But Jon does, and even with all the heart thumping and extra importance, we find out this has all been a, just a bigger savas move. Mance made his gamble with the turtle, Jon counters with the barrels. It might lack the glory of the burning switchback stair or a deathly duel with giants, but Jon and the others put their backs into it, and they save the wall with sweat and toil. Gren got behind a barrel, put his shoulder against it, grunted and began to push. Owen and Molly moved to help him. They shoved the barrel out a foot and then another and suddenly it was gone. They heard the thump as it struck the wall on the way down and then, much louder, the crash and crack of splintering wood, followed by shouts and screams. Satin whooped and Owen the oaf danced in circles while Pip leaned out and called. The turtle was stuffed full of rabbits. Look at them hop away. By the time they were done, the front of Mance's turtle was crushed in splintered ruin and wildlings were spilling out the other end and scrambling for their camp. Huzzah! A victory! A saviour! The wall is safe once more. It's greatly needed for the men to feel such positivity and the feeling that they've done something. But even with celebration, John feels that dread of attrition. Gren was grinning through his beard. Pip was making japes, and none of them would die today. On the morrow, though, John glanced towards the shed. Eight barrels of gravel remained, where twelve had stood a few moments before. They've bought themselves a day, perhaps a couple more, but this arm wrestle isn't going anywhere. Mance still has the numbers, the food, the ability to sleep for the Night's Watch doesn't, and John is running low on his new countermeasure. What will Mance counter his counter with next? How long can they keep this damn tap on before all the water runs out? The whole thing is incredibly tiring, so John takes his rest, although not before we're at least given another quality Pip and Gren moment, so our victory isn't totally sullied. But John's rest is brief and dreamless, though he believes otherwise. He thinks the long horn call and the voices are part of his sleep, when we really know it's the sound of brothers returning, as we enter a new stage in Castle Black and in Jon Snow's time there, one that will make you as angry and annoyed as anything else in this book, as the words unfairness and injustice are slapped into our faces with such force it's nearly enough to make you forget we've got old enemies returning. Jon's short time in charge was rife with dread, with mind games with Mance and bad news everywhere. Yet this passage will come to show it as also the purest time of his coming command, it was just him and his loyal men performing their duty. Everything after this is going to be much more difficult for John, as politics make an unwelcome return to Castle Black. Immaculate in his fur-trimmed cloak and polished boots, Sir Alice of Fawn turned to say, 
Here's the turncloak now, my lord, Ned Stark's bastard of Winterfell. I'm no turncloak, Fawn, John said coldly. In the leather chair behind the table where the old bear wrote his letters sat a big, broad, jowly man John did not know. Alice of Fawn and Jan Ostlin are two of our original enemies right back from a Game of Thrones. And they aren't just enemies, they are annoying enemies. They have essentially no positives about them, no aspects we can respect, nor any dimensions that make us understand them better. There is no great motivation to be how they are. They are just two massive dicks, frankly. Horrible just for horribleness's sake. And now we've learned they've teamed up. Superb. We should be specific here, because the book version of Alice of Fawn is not the show version, who does have that extra character depth and has another side where you can at least respect him and he's expertly played by Owen Teal. But he also plays a much more prominent role as a Jon Snow antagonist. In the books, he is a far less important player. He has no real office here, and simply serves as an annoyance in this book and dance until Jon sends him off above the wall. Jon Slint is a much bigger factor in the books. He was a key part of Ned's downfall. He's a symbol of the mess that Cersei and Joffrey created afterwards, and it's just downright despicable. It's been a long time since Jon, or the reader, has really had to deal with the injustice of Ned's fall. So this is not only an opportunity for those old wounds to be opened up for Jon, but also unknown for the first-time reader, will become an opportunity for John to serve justice of his own, in the exact same manner as his father would have. Speaking of long gaps, it's been a while since we've seen either of these characters, and we would have easily been forgiven for thinking they were just out of the picture. Fawn hasn't been seen on page since Tyrion VI of A Clash of Kings, even if he has popped up in the memories of Sam and John. Incidentally, I do like the fact that Fawn has returned just as his nicknames have kind of come true. Earlier in this chapter, John notes that Gren does look like an oryx now. John himself is filling the role of a lord, if Alice of Fawn had called Sam Slayer instead of Sir Piggy, he'd be free for free. Slint has spent even longer off the page, last appearing in Tyrion II of Clash of Kings, even if his name was brought up by Tywin in an earlier chapter of this book as a way to manipulate the Night's Watch, which apparently is working. But back to the present. Those words of injustice and unfair don't waste any time in making an appearance, as Jon is hauled before Slint and his cronies like a common prisoner, mere hours after defending the wall of his own command. To ignore leading the defence of the wall lip in the second battle, holding his own in Sturr's attack, and the fact that the entire castle would have already been slaughtered by that first offensive if he hadn't ridden for miles and miles with arrows in his leg just to make his warning heard. I'm getting ahead of myself with the defence of John because it's already infuriating to me. Before we even get to the specific charges and accusations laid against him, I doubt I need to convince any of you. We know of everything John has just done for the wall. Everything he's been doing for months now. Heck, everything he's been doing since he got there. I like him showing off his burned hand as yet more evidence for these claims being completely moronic. More than anything, it's the timing that really winds us up here. Not just in the fact that we know John's true deeds, but the pure stupidity of what they are doing. The wall is under attack, you moron. These men have just worn themselves to the bone, repelling three separate attacks, to say nothing of the constants in between. Good men have died, yet you want to sit here and quibble over what titles are being used. It gets me. It gets me. I can only assume George was aiming for peak frustration with this section, and he hits dead on the mark. The Horn of Winter, Sir Alistair chuckled. Were you commanded to count their snarks as well, Lord Snow? No, but I counted their giants as best I could. Sir, snapped the jowly man. You will address Sir Alistair as Sir, and myself as my lord. I am Janos Slint, lord of Harrenhal, and commander here at Castle Black until such time as Burn Marsh returns with his garrison. Firstly, George has an underrated talent for writing incredibly annoying speech patterns. We saw it a little bit of Lysa, which is exactly what Slints are. But I also love, love, love the fact that Janos Slint still includes Lord of Harrenhal as part of his title. Can there be a more hilarious sign that he really does not get the first thing about the Night's Watch? It's in the bloody oath. You don't get to be a lord anymore. And also, while we're in it, no, you are not Lord of Harrenhal, Janos. You've never even been there. It's been held by three different people in practicality and officially belongs to an even bigger ass than you. This self-delusion and pompousness is the perfect thing to mix in with Slint and Fawn mocking or deriding every word that comes out of John's mouth. 
the Horn of Winter, the Orders of Corin Harfan, everything about Egret, and it's a big moment that John chooses not to deny the truth of their relationship. All of it is dealt with the same uber-annoying way, and poor John even tries to point the conversation in the direction they should be focusing on when he asks how many men they've brought, because, you know, there's a wilding army at the door. But no, petty gripes and procedural bullshit have to come first. That's the double whammy. We have to watch John's heroism be questioned, but also must witness the coming of sovereign politics to a land that, for the most part, doesn't have them. And that's the whole point of the saga, isn't it? That the true fit and focus lies in the north, while everything below is just pointless squabbling for an empty chair that doesn't matter in the long run. Well, now that disease is reaching this part of the world, and it won't be going for some time. That's what I meant about Donald and John's sort command being the purest of our time at Castle Black. We're going to miss that unification going forward. And these two bellends aren't enough, apparently, so Janos brings in a third to complete the set with his surprise witness. Aye. Not until that instant did John recognise Rattleshirt. He is a different man without his armour, he thought. Aye, the wild thing repeated. He's the craven that killed the half-hand. Yet more frustration from the reader, because there's another warping of the truth that we actually know about. And because we love our chapter sequencing, isn't it a nice fit that John is being done up on lies and half-truths that look really bad depending on who is telling the story, just a chapter before the conclusion of Tyrion's trial, where the same has been done to him, as well as the little connection that Janos is only here because Tyrion sent him. After having to defend against Rattleshirt's version of events, everybody else starts getting involved. Slint and Fawn curse out Donald Noy, which is as annoying as any part of this chapter if I'm honest. As we suspected, Donald will not be remembered for his heroic deeds at the end of his life, nor even the fact that these deeds existed at all. He is derided as just a blacksmith, something that we could have easily expected from these pompous lords and knights. Of course they do not understand or appreciate. Let's take comfort in the fact that Donald Noy took pride in being just a blacksmith, and still did more for the war than anyone else. But they don't stop there, also naming Benjamin Stark as traitor, despite having less than zero evidence for any such claim. It wouldn't make sense at all. The, you know these Starks line, is equally stupid. Well, we know those Starks who have been the most consistent great house in history, because they understood duty and have always been fierce friends to the Night's Watch. These two morons can't see past their own noses. They think Starks are sneaky, because Alistair fought on the other side to one once, and ended up at the wall, while Slynnis had his run in with Ned in King's Landing, one of the least sneaky men of all time. While we're naming names... Fuck Septon Celador for jumping ship and trying to get in with the new bosses straight away. I had definitely forgotten that. In the reverse, you have to adore Maester Aemon for calling out the newcomers for the rubbish they are giving John. again considering what John has just done and the timing of the whole thing. Let's say all their claims were true and John had done all these terrible portrayals. The wildlings are still outside, you need to deal with that first. <sighs> but anyway, here's Maester Aemon being cool. They are the gods of the Norse, Septon. Maester Aemon was courteous but firm. My lords, when Donald Noy was slain, it was this young man, Jon Snow, who took the wall and held it, against all the fury of the North. He has proved himself valiant, loyal and resourceful. Were it not for him, you would have found Mance Raider sitting here when you arrived, Lord Slint. You were doing him a great wrong. Jon Snow was Lord Mormont's own steward and squire. He was chosen for that duty because the Lord Commander saw much promise in him, as do I. The chapter closes with Janos spouting rubbish about Eddard Stark, ensuring both Jon and our blood rises. As Jon notes, we aren't willing to listen to such lies and that's the final straw. He's put up with him and his friend's efforts going completely unrecognised, with the present danger not being appreciated, with his honour and intent being questioned after the hell he's been through in this book. But insults against Eddard Stark? Not going to happen. And even if this ending leaves us very concerned about the fate of the wall, or how long John is now going to survive, we at least get the tiniest of comeuppances. My lord is wise, so Alistair seized John by the arm. John yanked away and grabbed the knight by the throat with such ferocity that he lifted him off the floor. He would have throttled him if the Eastwatch men had not pulled him off. Fawn staggered back, rubbing the marks John's fingers had left on his neck. You see for yourself, brothers. The boy is a wildling. Wrong again, Alistair Fawn. Not a wildling. He's a wolf. 
And that closes John. That closes our John chapter for the day. And as we've only got four chapters for today, this obviously forms a nice opportunity to have our halftime mention. So let's take a little break here. It's going to be a quick one today. I've only got one note to give you, one shout out. It's an important one. Now the crisis our world finds itself in at the moment affects stuff up and down the board and obviously it affects stuff way way more important than anything I'm going to be talking about here. One of the sad things that had to be cancelled was Ice and Firecon, which if you're unaware is an incredibly popular convention put on each year for the creators and fans of our fandom. I get incredibly jealous each time because I still haven't built my raft across over the Atlantic, but everyone has a pretty spectacular time, I'm sure you're all aware of it anyway. Unfortunately, the current climate means the con had to be delayed till the end of October. It was due to be now. That's a really big decision. It includes loads and loads of reorganising and logistics and yet more hard work than has already been put in by the brilliant organisers. And I won't name names, but you'll know a good few of them anyway. And yeah, good news is that it didn't have to be cancelled outright. Now it could have all been left there. Like I say, it was rearranged, not cancelled. The organisers had already gone way beyond the call. But instead, they decided to do more for us all and host a virtual Ice and Firecon this past weekend. So what you can do now is head over to the Ice and Firecon YouTube channel, which I'll of course link to, and find a whole host of livestream videos from some of our fandom's best creators all getting together like they would have for different panels if the con had gone ahead. There's a crazy amount of stuff on there, trust me. There's a Creators of Ice and Fire meetup with San Rixin and Radio Westeros and History of Westeros and Davos Fingers and a whole bunch more people whom I know you love. They've got a video of a Westerosi musical, there's a book club video, there's a chat about the Night Fork, and you know how I love the Night Fork. There's Chloe from Girls Gone Canon having a live stream of Hayley Bowery from The Manimals, re-looking at season 8 whilst also having a drink or two. Drunk a song of ice and fire, that's my favourite. It's endless. The amount of content available and the sense of community it all instills is incredible. It's an amazing effort from a lot of people, a lot, lot of people. Some you'll see on camera, some you won't really putting this stuff together for our enjoyment. I'm hoping the majority of you already knew about this so that you could watch live and get involved in the chat, etc. as I did. I probably should have really included this in last week's shout out, so I apologise for that. But still, you can go back, you can, go, you can watch all the videos. You can see some of our favourites and chums from the Isle of Faces alumni and just have a blast. Most importantly, make sure you thank all involved, creators and organisers both for such a great time and a great service to our fandom. This is obviously a huge boost in a difficult time, especially when we're all lonely and, and separated. Getting that sense of community, like I say, and togetherness and just having our fandom all together is more than important. It's, it's amazing. So like I say, make sure you say thank you and go and enjoy all those videos. I know I did. Alright, let's, let's get back into it. Like I say, short one. We've still got two chapters to go and they're the larger two, especially this next one. We're getting right back into it. In the third of our four locations, we're all dotting around today, it's Tyrion 10. We've got no shortage of famous chapters in Storm Swords and guess what? We've got another one for you here. Yes, Tyrion's final chapter is the far larger and more consequential and that one is up next for him, but this still has not one, but two incredibly famous scenes even if one does trump the other for its sheer action and violence. All wrapped into one, we have the end of Tyrion's trial, the betrayal of Shay, we'll get into that, Tyrion finally telling King's Landing to just fuck off, and the conclusion of Oberyn Martell, as well as the supposed end to Gregor Clegane. Yeah, there's quite a lot to cover, this is a long one. Tyrion 10 is actually astoundingly similar to the John 9 chapter we've just covered. The sense of dread is palpable from the beginning with the way the trial's just been going. There's also major instances of unfairness and injustice, as well as some very fast-beating hearts, will also be going all-in on a moment where both sides are leaning on a single event for their outcome. Tyrion 10 just swaps the order round, with Shay coming first and the trial coming second. 
and the trial by combat coming second. Oh yeah, and the outcome of the trial is just a bit different from John's frozen barrel dropping. To me, this also symbolises that we are right at the end stage here. After this chapter, if you discount the epilogue, we've only got 10 chapters left. Everything's wrapping up. Other than John and Sam, who will make up 5 of that 10, we only have one non-final chapter remaining. It's probably the collective critical point of all the Song of Ice and Fire, and even if this is technically a shade outside the final 10, it's definitely got that crunch time feel. Crunch time might be in slightly bad taste considering... Well, we'll get to that at the end. We begin with a pretty dead-on reference to the chapter we've just finished. When dawn broke, he found he could not face the thought of food. By even fall, I may stand condemned. John just spoke about the facing of food, and he finished off his chapter by standing, or getting dragged off, condemned. To keep the vibe going, Tyrion considers what life might be like on the wall, as we did in his last chapter. He agrees, he could be made much use of, even if the creature comforts he's become used to would be unavailable for him. Side note here, seeing as Tyrion is thinking on Molestown, I wonder if Eastwatch and the Shadow Tower have similar establishments nearby for uh, recreational activities. The loss of dead comforts aren't what bothers Tyrion though. It's the pure injustice of having to admit to something he didn't do, and especially the fact he would have to do it to the face of Tywin Lannister. If it was someone else being judged, there's a chance Tyrion might have gone for this option. But giving his father that win, admitting he was right and Tyrion was wrong, giving him the last laugh and satisfaction in the war they've been waging for Tyrion's entire life? No, he can't accept that. And that's without the worry of the Lannisters pulling another Ned, like we discussed last time. Pod, tell me true. Do you think I did it? The boy hesitated. When he tried to speak, all he managed to produce was a weak sputter. I am doomed, Tyrion thought. No need to answer. You've been a good squire to me, better than I deserve. Whatever happens, I thank you for your legal service. Again, like last time, Tyrion tries to find just one person who believes him. Some sign that there is hope. Before it was Kevin, now it's Pod's turn. And that is a bit of a tragic goodbye, because chances are, Podrick does believe him. He just can't get the words out when the pressure's on. Considering the lengths Podrick goes to in Feast to be reunited with his former master, we can assume he is on Team Tyrion at this point. It's a nice moment that he receives some recognition for his master, but this is definitely a pair we, we hope run into each other again soon, even if they are on opposite sides of the story spectrum by the end of Dance. But that's all the setup we really have before this chapter really gets going. On the way to the throne room, there is a sense of everybody watching, everybody judging, and that plays heavily into Tyrion's lifelong me-against-the-world attitude, but also what's going to happen later with his specific me-against-the-city overboil. But that'll have to wait until later, when we get the first huge strike of the chapter. No sooner had Tyrion taken his place before the judges than another group of goldcloaks led in Shay. A cold hand tightened around his heart. Paris betrayed her, he thought. Then he remembered, No, I betrayed her myself. I should have left her with Lollis. Of course they questioned Sansa's maids, I'd do the same. Tyrion rubbed at the slick scar where his nose had been, wondering why Cersei had bothered. Shay knows nothing that can hurt me. Oof, so the end of that quote is, it sure is a stomach kick. We'll find out, excruciatingly so, how wrong Tyrion is on that point. But even before Shay opens her mouth, we at least have Tyrion realising one of his key mistakes. He got lax, he towed too far past the line in terms of keeping Shay close. And here's the comeuppance. Now, depending on whether Shay or Cersei were the kind of key force behind this, it's possible it could have come around anyway if Shay had been able to seek out Cersei, but that's a digression we will never know. Let's get back to that knows-nothing-that-can-hurt-me idea, because we sure aren't wasting time getting down to it. They plotted it together, she said, this girl he had loved. The imp and Lady Sansa plotted it after the young wolf died. Sansa wanted revenge for her brother, and Tyrion meant to have the throne. He was going to kill his sister next, and then his own lord father, so he could be hand with Prince Tommen. But after a year or so, before Tommen got too old, he would have him killed too, so as to take the crown for his own head. Now believe it or not, this is the kind of the two big paragraphs we get from Shay. 
It goes from bad to worse, but let's begin here. I mentioned earlier on in a couple of Tyrion chapters ago that I don't believe this to come under the term betrayal. And difficult though it is, I stand by that. You might say different and I understand, but hear me out. Is this a bad, evil act? Yes, Shay is lying. But is it a betrayal? No, not in my mind, at least not an emotional betrayal, because Shay is a sex worker and emotions were never part of the deal. Is it a betrayal as far as an employee throwing a former employer under the bus? Sure, if you want to be specific, but otherwise, no. Again, I insist we look at this from Shay's point of view if we are going to judge her. She provided everything Tyrion asked for that was part of the transaction. Clearly, that working relationship is over now, and Shay has to think about how she can secure her future next. The girl she was made for has disappeared, her one benefactor looks like he's going to be executed. I discussed at length this world Shay finds herself in is wildly violent against sex workers, so anyone blaming her for trying to find her next ring of security needs to ask themselves some serious questions. Now a large part of this that we simply don't know about is who came up with the idea. Did Shay construct all this and then go and offer it to Cersei? Did Cersei merely find out who she was and then write this specific script for her? There has to be an air of collaboration either way for the specific wording to come out, but details are murky. Either way, my long and overstated point is that Shay has to and deserves the right to look after herself first. She doesn't owe Tyrion anything. She provided her part of the bargain. So no, it isn't betrayal. In actuality, it's something closer to what Taina Merriweather did. Straight up lying. That's still bad. That's still real bad. Especially when an innocent man's life is at risk. Although, again, I'll point out Shay doesn't actually know if Tyrion is innocent or not. But she does deserve a certain amount of judgement for that. Still, people need to drop the betrayal tag and need to widen their view to see why Shay did it and how limited her options truly were, especially given that she knew the order of Lord Tywin about what would happen if she were discovered. So after it came out that she was Tyrion's sex worker, however it came out, she's really trapped in one lane. Now I say all that, but I absolutely understand why it feels like betrayed to Tyrion. He loved Shay, this is his absolute worst nightmare, on top of the fact it's yet another person saying he did something he didn't do. But the fact it's Shay is a heartbreaker for him. Again, that's not fair to burden Shay with that. Tyrion made the original deal and reminded himself again and again what the situation was, but he kept her close and fell in love anyway. But I do get why it hurts so bad. Next quote. He used me, every way there was, and he used to make me tell him how big he was. My giant, I had to call him. My giant of Lannister. Like I said, from bad to worse. Far, far worse. This is a soul-ripping level of terrible for Tyrion, and if people do feel the need to tear down Shay for anything, it's this. This isn't needed. It's pure cruelty for cruelty's sake. She's said her lies about him and Sansa plotting everything. She's had to admit to being his sex worker for her lies to have any merit, but it could have ended there. This exposure of the most private secrets of a person, this open mocking, it makes you feel sick to read it. But personally, all of this makes me think this was specifically Cersei planning this part. My personal headcanon is that whomever floated the idea of Shay being a witness, Shay likely just told Cersei the entire tale from beginning to end with every little detail. Cersei then extracted what she needed, told Shay where to embellish, and insisted on this part being included at the end. Because this type of utter humiliation and destruction of a person's dignity gained Shay nothing unless she secretly hated Tyrion all along. But it does gain Cersei an immense sense of satisfaction. And this type of cruelty is right in her wheelhouse. Likely, she feels this is the closest to true payback that she can get for Joffrey, knowing how Tyrion does actually care for Shay. The way Shay protests and Cersei joins in the laughter sells it for me. And just to continue with the headcanon, I personally think... Cersei handed Shay over to Tywin after the battle in the belief that he would fulfil his promise of hanging her, never believing Tywin would actually go for quite a different option. Another reason I'm pretty sure this is all Cersei is because, frankly, we didn't need Shay as a witness. This trial was over, the verdict was all but confirmed. Tyrion was going to die, even if they had to go to trial by combat first. Cersei specifically requested that they have this one last witness because she wanted her last cruel revenge at the end. 
By the by, for any who propose the theory that Cersei had Shay do this specifically so Tyrion would react and demand a tribal combat because she was worried he might take the black, might want to go back to two chapters to Peter Baelish where that kind of thinking belongs. Cersei just doesn't have the smarts to come up with such a ploy. Her line of thinking is more, Tyrion, over there, hurt him, hurt, hurt, hurt him. But that's enough focus on the two women in the middle of this, let's turn it back to Tyrion himself, the one who likely feels his ribcage has just been opened for everyone to have a poke around in. Oswald Cattleback was the first to laugh. Boris and Merrin joined in, then Cersei, Sir Loras, and more lords and ladies than he could count. The sudden gale of mirth made the rafters ring and shook the iron throne. The laughter swelled twice as loud. Their mouths were twisted in merriment, their bullies shook. Some laughed so hard that snot flew from their nostrils. I saved you all, Tyrion thought. I saved this vile city and all your worthless lives. Well, first off, who in the world is Oswald Kettleback? I definitely hadn't caught that misprint before. But more to the point, this is a hard read. It's tough not hearing John gets due and Slynn and Fort saying dickish things, but this is something else. Did Tyrion fault with his continuing a relationship with Shay, with his trusting her and ignoring his own advice? Yes, he did. Does that mean he deserves this? No, no he does not, so very few do. If this is all just a weaponization by Cersei, then let's hand it to her. It's as deep as a cut that can be conjured. Short of actually producing Tysha, is there anything more painful for Tyrion at this point? And as Shay's words don't hurt enough in a vacuum, and again we're ignoring the fact she is lying through her teeth about Tyrion being a king and kinslayer, we have this horrifying laughter that George paints in such a devastating manner. This is it, this is the breaking. The actual murders that Tyrion commits in his next chapter, they're the real kicker, sure, but this is the foundation. This is all of Tyrion's worst fears come true as he is mocked, laughed at, and made to feel utterly, utterly worthless. It is a horrible passage, and it kicks him into action. First he asks that Shay is removed, and we get this quote. Shay looked half in terror as the gold cloaks formed up around her. Her eyes met Tyrion's as they marched her from the hall. Was it shame he saw there, or fear? He wondered what Cersei had promised her. You will get the gold or jewels, whatever it was you asked for, he thought as she watched her back recede. But before the moon has turned, she'll have you entertaining the gold cloaks in their barracks. I include that quickly, just as some extra before I said about Cersei threatening or controlling Shay earlier. But again, I digress. Let's get to Tyrion's action with this quote. Nothing but this. I did not do it. And now I wish I had. He turned to face the hall, that sea of pale faces. I wish I had enough poison for you all. You make me sorry that I am not the monster you would have me be, yet there it is. I am innocent, but I will get no justice here. You leave me no choice but to appeal to the gods. I demand trial by battle. I'd love to read you the whole speech of that, because it's so wonderful and so powerful in a moment. And if you can find a better rendition of acting skill than Peter Dinklage's take on the show version of the speech, I'd really like to hear about it. We've spoken so much about Tyrion versus the small folk, Tyrion versus the city, ever since he first arrived. Now he's come full circle. He gave everything to try and save them, and they returned it with laughter. Fine, let's roll the dice then. Let's give no more satisfaction. There might have been a genuine chance at the wall, if not for Shay's inclusion, that Tyrion won't give Tywin that satisfaction. He won't go down without a fight, so let's do it. Do you have a champion to defend your innocence? He does, my lord. Prince Oberyn of Dawn rose to his feet. The dwarf has quite convinced me. The uproar was deafening. This is an easily imaginable moment, another that sets our souls on fire. But before that, there are a couple of notes that gives us clues about the other Lannisters. First, Cersei is glad Tyrion is choosing battle, obviously because she has Gregor and believes no one will fight for Tyrion, meaning her victory is assured and any chance of escape to the wall has just been snuffed out. But more interesting is Tywin's pure rage. Lord Tywin's face was so dark that for half a heartbeat, Tyrion wondered if he'd drunk some poisoned wine as well. He slammed his fist down on the table, too angry to speak. Let the issue be decided on the morrow, he declared in iron tones. I wash my hands of it. So this actually has me thinking that Tywin's wall offer might have been genuine. 
Well, at least he would have preferred that to a trial by combat, because like Cersei, he probably believes Tyrion does not have a champion, or perhaps both of them feared Tyrion has discovered Jaime and might try and call on him. Before going that, he would therefore make a complete mockery of the Lannister name, as Tyrion actually has to try and fight Gregor Clegane himself. Tywin is in no rush to feel that kind of humiliation, or perhaps he shares his daughter's concerns that Oberyn could actually win and Tyrion gets away scot-free. Or he knows he's in trouble whatever the result now that Oberyn is involved with all of Dawn behind him. Either way, he doesn't want any part of it, and Tyrion gets his wish. Once back in his cell, Tyrion lays out his angry decision was about grasping that last bit of control from his relations. If they were going to have their final pot shots, he was going to rob as much of the pleasure from them as he could. Maybe it'll be the same result, but at least the satisfaction will be lessened, and he can say he had his final jab as well. When the outlook is this bad, you take what victories you can get. But thinking on these supposed victories only leads him back to Shay, where bitterness takes over, and a certain song returns, just before its greatest moment in the next chapter. A song whose lyrics we are going to be very familiar with once we get the dance. And then it's battle day, and how high is reader anticipation right now? We have the life of one of our main characters about to be decided by a duel of two of the best fighters in the world, as well as them being complete opposites of each other. Gregor is, already, basically inhuman, he's a killing machine. He's an unbeatable monster, so the thrill of possibility we have of Oberyn, whose build-up in the second half of the book is honestly some of George's greatest mini-plot arcs, beating him is generally palpable. What is he going to do? How is he going to slay the giant with just a spear? Is that poison on said spear? Will it be as simple as getting Gregor off his feet, and will Tyrion be saved? Certainly, George has aligned it to look that way. It's such luck for Oberyn to be there in the first place, he's an 11th hour saviour. We've just had all this build-up, and obviously, Tyrion is one of our central characters, so most would think he's probably going to win. Then again, I feel like by this point, the reader has got the message that no one is safe, and they should not believe so. And we've seen what Gregor can do, so I think the first time reader is just throwing all bets into the air by this point. Next, Oberyn brings up a slightly different idea, and we have a quote. Queen Marcella, it would have been more tempting if only he did have Sansa tucked beneath his cloak. If she declared for Marcella over Tommen, would the North follow? What the Red Viper was hinting at was treason. Could Tyrion truly take up arms against Tommen, against his own father? Cersei would spit blood. It might be worth it for that alone. So Oberyn really pushes this idea, more so than might be remembered given how jam-packed this chapter is already. Clearly, this is a formulated plan. We've already had it mentioned once early on, and it seems like Oberyn was 100% going to do this once he got back to Dawn. Which has been wondering what his exact plans were if this had all gone well. If all goes well, Gregor will be dying a painful death and Tyrion is free. So does that give Oberyn the opportunity to fairly leave his position and return to Dawn, or does he send words to Ariane and the Sand Snakes to crown the cellar and hang around himself in King's Landing to try and make things even more difficult? Clearly, Tyrion is part of the plan as well. They know he is of high intelligence and experience in warfare. They know that splitting the family right down the middle is better than making just one outlier. And they probably also know Marcella might be a lot more tractable about the whole thing if she has her beloved uncle there giving advice instead of just Aerys Oakheart. Again, again, given the thoughts of Sansa being included in a package deal, Oberyn's given this a deal of forethought and it's going for a full-scale war if he hopes to have the North involved as well. I mean, that's everything he ever wanted, right? The opportunity to continue the war his sister and uncle were lost in. As for Tyrion's motivations, well, it's an incredibly intriguing lost plot line that we can dream about. Tyrion down in Dawn, plotting with Oberyn and Duran, crowning Rosella and championing her cause to start up another true civil war. Yeah, I'm, I would have liked to see that, it would be very interesting. But if you cast your mind way back to early Game of Thrones and early Clash of Kings, we spoke a lot about how Tom and Rosella are, one, really cool kids, and two, fully in love with Tyrion. We spoke then about how Tyrion would one day stop looking at them as cherished niece and nephew, and start looking at them like pieces on the board. In many ways, he already started viewing them that way when he was hand. But this is different. Now he's contemplating trying to defeat Tommen. Could Tyrion take arms against Tywin? Of course he could. 
even if he managed to feel guilt about it after. Could he go to war against Cersei? Hand the man a dagger right now. But Tommen, and putting Marcello against Tommen, that's a different thing. As we spoke about last week, if Tyrion does get out of all this, he needs to get out of the city quick-like, and Dorne will probably be one of the hardest places for Cersei or Tywin to follow. Oberyn has given us all a lot of thinking, and clearly has a space for Tyrion in his vision. How much of all this Duran knows is a different question, but Oberyn clearly left instructions behind for Arianne and the others. Just imagine everything that we see happen in Feast, happening not just with Oberyn, but Tyrion as well. That would have been quite the different storyline and a little bit more juicy. Whilst Oberyn is being very lightly armoured for battle, and this kind of reminds me of uh, Brienne arming Renly up before his death, he gives us another retelling of his and Elia's childhood trip to Cassidy Rock, but this time with a slightly different viewpoint, that he and Elia were meant to be betrothed to Cersei and Jaime. This is quite the power play for Joanna Lannister and the still unnamed Mrs Martell that is Oberyn's mother. That would have been a pretty major moment in the political history of Dawn and the Seven Kingdoms. If I remember correctly, the only non-Dornish houses the Martells ever married into the Targaryens. Certainly these two particular houses in Lannister and Martell have never crossed paths. A joint Lannister-Dornish alliance would have been a very very large player on the grand stage. The Tyrells particularly likely would not have been fond of such a move and it really could have changed history quite a bit if the Mad King still became mad and the Arryn Stark Baratheon block still formed on the other side. There's some really clear battle lines being drawn up there and we could obviously spend a long long time talking about the difference it would have made to the individual stories of Jaime and Cersei. Joanna and Mrs Martell clearly had their wits about them. This would have changed much whether the rebellion still became a thing or not. Never before would the Dornish have such a link with an outside family other than the royal Targaryens. The change in the political landscape really can't be overstated, but I should restrain from going too far down that rabbit hole. This chapter is already going to be a long one, but suffice to say, this is our last alarm of the day. Either way, Joanna's death put an end to such possibilities, because Tywin was not as smart as his wife. Perhaps grief had something to do with it, but he was too bothered with what match would be most prestigious over what would be most advantageous. He wanted Rhaegar. Now on the surface, allying yourself with the crown is obviously better than allying with the Martells, but given that Ares was already unstable and the rift was already forming between King and Hand, Tywin should have seen this as a much better alternative that weaned him off relying on the Iron Throne. To be honest, I suspect a lot of it was that Tywin felt he deserved a match with Rhaegar, that he had earned it by all he had done for House Targaryen. We can wander all day, but either way, the deal was nixed. It all goes back and back, Tyrion thought, to our mothers and fathers and theirs before them. We are puppets dancing on the strings of those who came before us, and one day our own children will take up our strings and dance on in our steads. This is one of my favourite Tyrion quotes ever, as he hears one insult the offer of him for Elia was. He perfectly sums up, essentially, the entire reason why Westeros is the way it is. It's, it's the reason our own world was like it was for so long, and perhaps still is in some ways. It's insightful, it's dead on, and I'm going to mention it again later. But first, another quote. Your father is not a man to forget such slights. He taught that lesson to Lord and Lady Tarbeck once, and to the reigns of Castamere. And at King's Landing, he taught it to my sister. Elia and her children have waited long for justice. Prince Oberyn pulled on soft red leather gloves and took up his spear again. But this day, they shall have it. So Oberyn reveals that he has a working theory that Tywin commanded Elia's brutal end because he was still pissed at Elia for snagging Rhaegar instead of his perfect Cersei. While this does seem the kind of psychopathic opinion Tywin Lannister might have, we and Tyrion actually know Tywin didn't even care enough about Elia to give any orders about her at all. Well, at least that's how he claims. I wonder if the truth would hurt Oberyn more or less. Tyrion clearly doesn't believe now is the time to correct him. Besides, the time for the duel has arrived. On the way into the Outer Ward, we get a call back to the beginning of the chapter, as the people again have crowded out to watch and stare at Tyrion Lannister and the battle for his life. There's that sense of being surrounded and being a kind of sick spectacle, an odd celebrity for the worst first of this city. Tyrion also notes that the sun is trying to break through the clouds. Well, we can obviously relate Oberyn to being the sun, 
and in a second, Gregor is described as a massive grey in his armour, so he can be our cloud for the day. George is obviously sensational at knowing when to hit us with blood pumpers as tension rises, and it's no different as we go here. The description of Gregor is enough to get us going, but this from Oberyn is even better. Even Prince Oberyn's paramour paled at the sight of him. You're going to fight that? Ilaria San said in a hushed tone. I am going to kill that, her lover replied carelessly. And in a minute, Oberyn says, Have they told you who I am? So Gregor grunted through his breaths. Some dead man. He came on, inexorable. The Dornish man slid sideways. I am Oberyn Martell, a prince of Dawn, he said, as the mountain turned to keep him in sight. Princess Elia was my sister. If we had the time, I'd just read out the whole fight for you. We get some sensational duels throughout the series. We definitely have a couple of blinders coming up for Brienne. And we've already had a great trial by combat in this very book. But this one is so memorable. The tension is so fantastic on every line because we are inside Tyrion's head and every tiny moment literally means the entire world for him. The choreography of this fight is also superb because it's so different. For the most part, we've just seen sword versus sword in some manner. But now we not only have Oberyn fighting in a beautiful and eye-pleasing way, we also have him chatting the whole way through like the Westerosi version of Spider-Man. His passion, his burning personality, really shines through as we get further and further. Even with all his build-up, he has been quite restrained during his time in King's Landing, and we can so feel that this is a 16-year-old want he's finally receiving. The love for Elia from Oberyn is as palpable as anything in this fight. You raped her, he called, fainting. You murdered her, he said, dodging a looping cut from Gregor's greatsword. You killed her children, he shouted, slamming the spear point into the giant's throat, only to have it glance off the thick steel gorget with a screech. It's probably illegal not to have this part quoted somewhere, right? I chose this specific edition just because it paints such a good picture of Oberyn dancing around his opponent and making use of Gregor's lumbering stupidity, lack of speed and lack of vision. All of it is expertly done, again raising that level of expectation in our hearts. Can he actually do this? In the next paragraph, these lines are repeated no less than four times in quick succession, and we can quickly see this isn't just Oberyn getting all of his pain off his chest, even if that's a big part of it, it's also another strategy. Piss Gregor off, get him angry and annoyed, get him to lash out. And it works, spectacularly. Gregor is seen bellowing and charging round. As Tyrion notes, he's something closer to an animal than a human. Next quote from this fight. The luckless stable boy behind him was not so quick. As his arm rose to protect his face, Gregor's sword took it off between elbow and shoulder. Shut up, the mountain howled at the stable boy's scream, and this time he swung the blade sideways, sending the top half of the lad's head across the yard in a spray of blood and brains. Yeah, I think that serves pretty well as a description of someone who's more beast than man, especially not being able to cope with the noise. It's all too much in his head. And all those memories of stories about Gregor were surfacing in our mind about how he can't deal with his rage or a hurting head, which he says he has in a moment. Of course, this is King's Landing, so no one thinks too much on the poor stable boy. That's kind of turning out to be a pretty dangerous profession in these books, isn't it? As Oberyn presses his advantage. And side note, Gregor here is described as covered in gore. Horrible to think about, though it is. That's probably how he appeared the last time he came towards the Martell. Clegane lifted his own shield against the glare. Prince Oberyn's spear flashed like lightning and found the gap in the heavy plate, the joint under the arm. The point punched through mail and boiled leather. Gregor gave a choked grunt as the Dornishman twisted his spear and yanked it free. Elia, say it. Elia, of Dawn! In poetic brilliance, it is the sun that helps Oberyn finally break through. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. These books surely have some nice Legend of Zelda references in them. This time, it's the use of a mirror shield to stun some monster and allow for attack. Superb tactics from Oberyn, and effective as Gregor finally buckles, and Tyrion, the crowd, and all of us are miles past the edge of our seats by now. Oberyn's deadliness comes out in full force. He takes out a knee, gets Gregor on the ground like he said, and finishes with this. The crack of the Aswood shaft snapping was almost as sweet a sound as Cersei's wail of fury, and for an instant, Prince Oberyn had wings. The snake has vaulted over the mountain. Four feet of broken spear jutted from Clegane's belly, as Prince Oberyn rolled, rose, and dusted himself off. 
He tossed aside the splintered spear and claimed his foe's greatsword. If you die before you say her name, sir, I will hunt you for all seven hells, he promised. It's exhilarating. It's monumental. It's what we all want to see. And it's so very, very George to provide us with all that before pulling his famous switcheroo. The Red Viper brought down the greatsword in a wild slash, but he was off balance and the edge did no more than put another dent in the mountain's van brace. Then the sword was forgotten as Gregor's hand tightened the twisting, yanking the Dornishman down on top of him. Then I smashed her fucking head in, like this. As he drew back his huge fist, the blood on his gauntlet seemed to smoke in the cold dawn air. There was a sickening crunch. Again, it was tempting just to read that whole passage out, because it is so stomach-turning and such a brilliant ploy of writing from George. Sickening is quite the word, not just in the physical nature of death and the idea that evil just can't be killed. Again, Gregor was doing all of this with a spear inside of him, just to remind you, but in its larger meaning. I imagine most readers go through that particular paragraph two or three times just to check they've read it right. What? Oberyn is just... dead? No, no, no. After all that, he's just dead? And Tyrion's lost? You've done it again, George, you monster you. That's what they all say. There's a lot of themes to take from this ending, because it's more than just an incredibly exciting climax of a chapter, and the one that stands out the most is the message on revenge. We talk about this theme so often in Aya's storyline, in Lady Stoneheart's storyline, in Sandor's storyline. It's about to become a major part of Tyrion's storyline as well. And obviously, it is the whole basis for Oberyn as a character. Here comes a man whom we get, in the grand scheme of things, a briefest glimpse of. He's pretty much brilliant on all angles. He's smart, he's cultured, he's an amazing fighter, clearly. He could have done pretty much anything of his life. But even decades later, he remains obsessed with doing justice for his sister's death. Not that I'm painting that as a bad choice. She was horrifically murdered and the want for vengeance is perfectly human. But what we find out here is that even when he has it, even when Oberyn has his sister's killer dying in front of him, it still results in pain and ultimately a loss for him. Nothing is truly avenged. It's a very complex thing to try and pick through, and I doubt I'm going to do it justice, to be honest. This is different from the show, where Oberyn purposefully keeps the fight going, so Gregor can point Tywin out, and ends up dying more of hubris when he glances up at Ilaria. In the books, it's different. He was going for the killing shot when Gregor just summoned the strength out of nowhere to kill him. So there's a sense of inevitability there. The show is more a micro-view on hubris and the need for vengeance within the frame of this one duel. I think George and the book's message is of a larger scope about how perhaps Oberyn should have never been there in the first place. Alari loses him, Duran loses him, all of his daughters lose him, and Ariane as well. The overall launching plan for vengeance loses him. Remember, him getting involved in the trial by combat was never part of the plan. Oberyn just couldn't resist the opportunity to get at Gregor. But that's the brilliance of George's writing, because we can know all that and our brains can say that he's silly and he should have stayed away, but our hearts read him shouting his sister's name and how someone he loved was violently stolen from him, and we really can't disagree with his actions or say that we'd do any different. It all goes back and back to and forth, to our mothers and fathers and theirs before them. We are puppets dancing on the strings of those who came before us, and one day our own children will take up our strings and dance on in our steads. I read that to you again, because it's no mere coincidence that Tyrion happened to think it now in this chapter. It's absolutely poignant for the moment, because we know from Feast that the Sand Snakes, Dawn as a whole, are now crying out for vengeance for Oberyn. So they'll make a strike in some way. Then the Lannisters will want to do the same. And on and on we go. It's the Bracken versus Blackwood story down to a T. I think that's a large part of George's story here on the first of revenge and how hollowing it can be. We've also got a few questions on the intricacies of a trial by combat. What is the deal if both combatants die simultaneously, which is definitely what I thought had happened the first time I saw this scene on the show? Do they go again with no champions? Or is it seen as Tyrion failing to get a decisive decision from the gods and they therefore revert to the judge's verdict? So we have to say goodbye to Oberyn Martell, clearly one of the most interesting characters we ever meet, and it can take a while for that fact to sink in. His legacy will become incredibly important as the Dornish storyline opens up to us in Feast, something that would never have happened without him connecting us here in this book. And it's a reminder of something we already learnt of Rob. You can have all the gear, all the accolades, you can be winning the entire time. Until you're not. 
evil can still have its day despite your best efforts. And again, there's this idea of an unstoppable force of Gregor, especially given what will happen with him and Kyburn. And all that extends to Tyrion too. You can be innocent, and you can have your Icarus be mere inches from touching the sun and saving you all. There's, inevi there's inevitability and dread there again, as we have to come to terms for what's cruelly in store for one of our favourite characters. And just for our last chapter, we end up with our POV being taken away to the cells, even if Tyrion's situation seems way, way worse than Jon's. Okay, so I think we know what we're waiting for in the Tyrion storyline. That's going to come not next week, the week after, but for now we have one chapter remaining to us. It's a goodbye, it's a final in a POV arc. It's Daenerys 6. In typical fashion, George delays us from learning anything further and having any resolution about Tyrion by zapping us as far away as possible to Slaver's Bay. Or perhaps he's just signalling that the events Tyrion has just suffered are going to end up pointing him to the exact location where Daenerys is now. Or maybe I'm just way too into chapter sequencing, that's perfectly possible. Either way, we arrive at a final chapter and the closing of one of my favourite book arcs in the series. I'd argue there is no larger change between dying and endpoints in any single book than Daenerys coming from sailing out of Carth, wondering where to go to Pentos, to where she is now, with three cities conquered, an entire culture and subcontinent in upheaval, and the complete change in destiny of hundreds of thousands of people's lives. I personally love Storm Daenerys. It is an amazing comeback after a Clash Danny storyline that really just had one redeeming feature. So to me, this is the first big loss as an ending chapter, and like I mentioned last week, Danny kicks off trend here. Jamie's final chapter will start next week's episode, although we will see him briefly after, with Aya's final coming two chapters after that. This is also the first final chapter that I really feel is ending, ignoring Catelyn obviously because we never get her back. Even though I prefer Stormbrand to other brands, I'm not I'm still not nearly so bothered about him as Danny. And we'll soon see Davos again, so this closing chapter really has me lamenting. Again, I love Storm Danny so so much. She marches through the world helping people, laying out her power, tricking people, outsmarting people, and I say people it's men. She's tricking men. She's outsmarting men. She's going from strength to strength as a leader of armies and a mother to the masses. She's made a huge leap, a world-altering leap that no one else in these books even comes close to. Not a chance. Nowhere near. And it's a dang shame to have to say goodbye. But much more on that later. I should probably just get on with the actual chapter. So the first thing that jumps out to us is, hey, Danny is on top of a pyramid. And she's in marine. She wasn't in marine last time we saw her. She was outside. So what gives? Well, there's an element of events passing between any character's POV chapters and the readers having to fill in the gap and work out what's transpired, George really perfects this technique with Storm Daenerys. There's an element of this back in early game, but she wound up having so many chapters near the end that it didn't matter so much. Clash didn't have enough going on to make it relevant, and Storm, it's really been building. And part of it is just writing economy and necessity. I said back at the beginning of this book, it is an amazing feat what George manages to fit into six chapters for Daenerys, and really five as the plot doesn't advance all that much during her storm opener. But he's achieved that by mastering leaving major events off page, and yet we don't feel like we've missed out on too much. It's been a gentle increase. We got to see the events of Astapor on page, Yunkai fell off page but within the chapter, and we still saw the immediate reaction. But you remember last time with Danny, we were just left with the hint of her sending Jorah and Barristan into the sewers with the hope of it bringing her marine. That was all we were left with. So obviously the jump between Danny 5 and 6 is the biggest, with the most happening off-page or off-screen. Just reading this initial paragraph tells us that either that plan, or some other, was successful for Danny to get in. Supposedly, the city has fallen completely, but we're completely lacking in details of who survived and who didn't, etc. etc. And it gets us thirsty for more before it's finally revealed. I do think that the success of these large chapter gaps, and missing out key moments without feeling like we're really missing out on anything, played a large part in convincing George he could pull off the five-year gap as a lot of the writing style would have just been a larger, more extrapolated version of this chapter. Incidentally, we'll talk more about this at the end, 
This is the first arc ending where you can really clearly see it was leading into a five year gap. Bran didn't kick off that vibe so much just because we had no idea what he's doing above the wall, and like I keep saying, Davos returns after his last chapter. But again, I will talk more about that at the end. Here's the first quote for the chapter. Watching her dragons chase each other about the apex of the Great Pyramid, where the huge bronze harpy once stood. So that's a pretty nice hint and some imagery for what's happened. That huge bronze harp we equated to the boss level of Danny's journey in her last chapter has gone, replaced by the living symbol of dragons instead. It also lets us know immediately that the dragon survived, whatever it took to gain Marine, which is pretty critical information, all things considered. Next quote. Up here in her garden, Danny sometimes felt like a god, living atop the highest mountain in the world. Do all gods feel so lonely? Some must, surely. We can also infer that Danny has been there long enough for the initial thrill and elation of victory to have worn off. It might seem a bit high and mighty for someone to be thinking of themselves in terms of gods, but if anyone has the right to, it's Daenerys. She's been treated as a god by her followers and has gone from victory to victory to victory. Now she's been physically placed far above the common people, something she's not used to. When she was with Drogo, she shared all of herself out under the sky on the same level as anyone else. In this book, she spent her whole time on a ship with everyone or on the march with everyone. The only time she's been involved with anything lavish was in Calf, and we recall how that ended, so her unease is understandable. The Red Priests believe in two gods, she had heard, but two who were eternally at war. Danny liked that even less. She would not want to be eternally at war. Oh dear, early hints of what's coming from Marine. Even when Daenerys isn't at war, she will be at war. It's a real comparison to Jon's predicament. He might come back to look upon those three battles at the wall as a simpler time. Danny might end up feeling the same about her conquest of Slaver's Bay. While Daenerys focuses on Sande, promising to return her home to Narf one day because she just can't stop wanting to help her children, she also gives our first mention of Jorah and the devastating reveal she heard at the end of her last chapter. No word yet on his fate, but it makes the feeling of loneliness that much clearer. This isn't just a physical removal because she's at the top of a pyramid, it's that feeling of loss for her oldest friend. Suspicion and self-doubt are going to plague her through the remainder of her arc, but this is the beginning of the inability to trust that left her feeling lonely. Jorah was the constant, through all the wildest changes of her life, and it turned out she was wrong about him. But from there we start getting some detail on what happened as Daenerys thinks back on her later step of her journey towards becoming a conqueror. If a war galley could ram another ship, why not a gate? That had been her thought when she commanded the captains to drive their ships ashore. So we find out there's this whole other half to the attack that got them into the city, one that Daenerys herself thought of when everyone else had been pretty clueless about that. We've spoken a lot about Danny's growing military mind, and this is a great cherry on top, especially when she later mentioned she wanted to lead the attack herself. Bravery and brains, what more could you want? Let's not skip over this decision about the ships as well, but it's a huge gamble. If it doesn't work, then she and her people are completely stranded, free to starve outside the walls or probably get ridden down on a retreat. It's a real cards-all-in type situation. Even with the assumption her sewer rats, as she calls them, came through, it would not be so easy a victory as it was in Astapor and Yunkai. And we'll later discuss how she didn't think the rats would make it anyway, so it really did require some confidence on her end. As it turns out, it worked, as Danny recalls hearing the tide literally shift as the city's defenders suddenly found out they had enemies behind them as well as in front. The rest, you have to imagine, would be a complete slaughter. And side note, if you are a fan of John and Daenerys art comparisons, how about this right here? The dead were heaped so high before the broken gate that it took her three men and near an hour to make a path for her silver. Joto's cock and the great wooden turtle that had protected it, covered with four sides, lay abandoned within. A mere two chapters ago, we had John defend a wall against this very same type of attack. George even uses the same word for it, and if we want to expand on that, then the plan of sending off a second force to infiltrate and attack from behind is exactly what Stir was supposed to do. It's a pretty dazzling reflection of our two big characters here. As Danny recalls more of the victory and what happened immediately after, we enter into a realm of difficult discussion about basically good and evil. 
For the first time in this book, we're going to have to deal with some of the consequences of Danny's liberation, both intended and unintended. Yes, we did have the burning of slave masses in Astapor, but they had been built up as so horrific and the scene so major it didn't stand out too much at the time. In Yunkai, we just kind of missed out entirely, but not so in this chapter. First off, we get this quietly slipped into a sentence. When the last resistance had been crushed by the Unsullied and the sack had run its course, Danny entered the city. She rode past burning buildings and broken windows, through brick streets where the gutters were choked with the stiff and swollen dead. Cheering slaves lifted blood-stained hands to her as she went by and called her mother. There's a word we have to focus in on here, and it's sack. We've been in this world long enough to know that sacks are terrible, awful things. Now, is if one by Daenerys going to be better than most? Yes, because she herself is not bloodthirsty, or giving express commands to violently sack somewhere like a Yorg Greyjoy. And a large contingent of her main army is the Unsullied, who do not do that kind of thing unless they are told to. So that's good, but it's really only damage limitation. A sack is still a sack, and Daenerys doesn't just have the Unsullied. They're the only ones mentioned in her comment of breaking the wall, but you would assume some of the swords are in there too. And Danny might command them not to sack either, but it's a lot harder to police. In a few pages, we'll get confirmation that Danny orders against sacking and punishes those who break the rules in the following days, but there's still an awful lot of crime happening out there in the aftermath. Besides, we have an extra variable, the slaves themselves, the ones with blood-stained hands, who, when the victory became apparent, obviously took their chance and did their fair share of the killing, and do their fair share of the crimes after, as we just mentioned. And this is what I mean when I, when I say it's incredibly hard to discuss. Who are we to say these slaves killing their masters are evil? Not many would sign up to that notion, but this is also an entire city we are talking of. Not everyone is employed as a slave master. Daenerys noted gutters chock full of the dead, with no detail whether they were soldiers, men, women or even children. I think Danny, being Danny, would have specifically noted children, and we are right by the gate still at this point, so probably they are soldiers. But take that idea and apply it to a whole city of slaves rising up at the same time. A former slave throws off his chain and kills the family who owned him. All of them. Wife and children too. Is that evil or not? Are the family evil for being a participant of a culture that owns slaves? Are the children, the ones who just happen to be born into this situation, are they evil? Yeah, incredibly complex questions are obviously way outside of my scope of ability to try and answer. I'm just saying, it makes you think. Assumedly, there was a level of this in Astaboth and Yunkai 2, we just didn't have to see it. So what does all that say about Daenerys? Is she now morally wrong for bringing this violence against potentially innocent private citizens, as well as those who are definitely are evil and involved, in, and involved in the slave trade? I say no. She's trying to right ancient wrongs and end slavery as a whole. That will never make her evil. But you can see how incredibly complex and difficult the questions are becoming, and that will definitely plague Daenerys going forward. We get a much more pointed example of this as Danny remembers finding the great masters outside the pyramid, and her physical description of them as shriveled or fleshy or old sticks their true nature is revealed when the crutch of slave labour is taken away. But then Danny makes her first decree as a ruler of Marine. I want your leaders, Danny told them. Give them up and the rest of you shall be spared. How many? one old woman had asked, sobbing. How many must you have to spare us? One hundred and sixty-three, she answered. Later in this chapter, the issue of Targaryen madness is going to be brought up, and many will point to this as an example of such, especially because Danny mentions the hot anger of the dragon being inside her at that moment. I contend that harshly, because no one is going around calling the Grand Masters, who did this first and with children, insane. For some reason, that seems reserved for Daenerys only. Is this clean? Is it completely and utterly good? No, we can't say that without hesitation. Is it justice? I say it's nearer to that than it is to anything else. To me, there's something inherently Stannis about this act. One bad turn deserves another. Good acts do not wash out the bad, etc, etc, and good acts seem to be lacking in the Marine. Justice is the bottom line, and no one seems in a rush to be calling Stannis mad either. Again, those were children named up on those 163 posts, guilty of nothing save being born a slave. 
From the majority, these leaders of the slave masters are evil and absolutely deserve such a fate. Harsh justice is still justice, as Danny will say a little later in the chapter. Majority is the majority is the key word though, because as we'll find out later, there are semi-innocents in that new number as well. Although that also invites those huge scope questions of if you are truly innocent, if you're still a cog in the slavery machine. And also that this act will specifically make Danny's time marine harder with the Sons of the Harpy. Even Daenerys herself feels queasy about the whole thing a couple of lines later, but she resolves that with this. It was just. It was. I did it for the children. So we really can't say this was a bad act, because by and large, it was deserved. Rather than try and persuade us of one side of the fence or the other, I think the message George is getting across is that there's not going to be anything easy about any of this. There's no single decision that won't create more problems or make someone else unhappy, even while Danny tries to serve everyone. There's a comment on what it is to rule, another key theme running throughout this chapter. This is going to be a huge part of Danny's dance arc, and John's, hey, who knew, and a big part of the jumble that is Marine. I think all of it is supposed to be shown as the other end of the same justice spectrum that a Ned or a Cregan start might occupy. Would Ned ever nail up all these people? Well, the death of all these children might get him down close, but more than likely, Ice would just be getting very, very busy. Cregan might opt to drag the whole thing out in a huge trial before getting his block out. Daenerys is more intense, making a decision in the moment, and much younger, don't forget. Who's to say what Ned would have done in his youth? He had an icy rage in him too, don't you? But the point is that both of these are just different forms of justice. But anyway, all of that was a long divergence into the recent past, so let's rejoin Danny in the present as she heads for her audience chamber, and note that even something so trivial as smashing up the old Miranese throne and sitting on a bench is done with the best intentions and is probably celebrated by some, but still muttered about by others. It's a great introduction to how pernickety and annoying the Miranese as people are going to become, for Daenerys and for us. Danny gives a roundup of all those who still make up her inner council, while we are left on tenterhooks about the fates of Barristan and Jorah. But while they are not there physically, their presence is still felt by Danny as we see the effects of betrayal. She can't bring herself to trust anyone at all now, and it results in an increased reliance on the three heads of the dragon theory, concluding that those two heads would be trustworthy beyond a doubt. Although I'm not sure why she thinks this, she already knows what brothers can be like. She thought of the three heads version before, but she will do so much more now after Sejora, and we can already see she's comparing herself to Aegon the Conqueror much more frequently. Talk of unintended consequences and the difficulty of managing original talk of unintended consequences and the difficulty of managing original intentions will come up prominently as Daenerys is forced to take two steps back and discuss what has become of Astaroth since she left when the envoy comes to speak to her. This message and the ones that will come after will basically say victory and loss in the same sentence. She won the Unsullied, she burned the Masters, she left victorious. But, as we've said often lately, places and people don't freeze because a POV isn't there anymore. When there are no dragons in the sky, Astapor reverts to what is always known, violence and slavery, and more violence. Daenerys tried to instill a new system, but she's fighting against thousands and thousands of years of ingrained culture. This way of thinking is just so set in this way of the world. Daenerys is fighting against far more than a single victorious day with her dragons. This whole book has been about Danny hopping from win to win, and some of those wins are still very much alive, but loss has come out of it as well. Has she helped Astapor in the long run? Well, she's helped the Unsullied, so yes, and there's a lot of people, but now more being trained in their place, so no, although it's not her fault directly. But this is the problem, because Daenerys takes it on her shoulders as 100% her fault. She has given them a butcher king, she has made death and horror. It's a harsh assessment, because Daenerys has also created joy and liberty, but it's the point we have made before, nothing is so simple. Human nature and the culture of this area has overrun without her. What she wants would take years upon years of struggle and persistence. Remember all this though, as it will play onto Danny's thinking later on. Danny is also smart enough to see the knock-on effect of the news of Astapor, meaning yet more freedmen joining her numbers when she leaves. 
and seeing as Marina is the biggest city she has taken on yet, that number is really going to be pretty big. It's also a cool reminder to re-readers that Daenerys completely intended to just keep on rolling after liberating Marine and marching on west. Such a march would be deadly indeed, for the next living city on the map is Mantaris if you want to get your maps out, and it is about the same distance as Marine to Rastapur all over again. Perhaps she has captured ships to sail herself there, but that ain't enough for all her freedmen. Yes, they'll reach the Demon Road halfway along, which will at least speed things up, but the number of people that would die on such a trip is pretty nasty to consider. Anyway, keep all this coming and going stuff in your head, as I say, it's going to come up again later. Besides, emptying Marine's granaries for a trip would only mean more and quicker hardship for those who remain behind. The envoy also brings up the first of Danny's many, many Marine marriage proposals. She's no stranger to such, but a really long queue is going to form in dance, and we have to applaud Masande for going to bat for her friend slash sister and having the confidence to call the envoy and his butcher master out. Great Cleon will give you many strong sons. Danny found herself bereft of words, but little Masande came to her rescue. Did his first wife give him sons? Good job, Masande, well done. Before we move on to the next petitioner, we see how deep Daenerys' melancholy is. This is a direct contrast to what we expect from the chapter opening. Danny is victorious. She's in a lovely garden terrace high in a pyramid. She's literally on top of the world. Given everything she's been through, she should be elated, but instead goes the other way. In many ways, I consider Marine to Daenerys as Cersei is to Jaime. It just saps the soul and puts her in a bad mood. We spent a book of Daenerys moving from victory to victory, so to see her in this mood is a real downer. But as well as the problems of state that Marine is providing in spades, I think it shows how deep the wounds from Sir Jorah's betrayal are. It makes me hate him even more. Unfortunately, we really see how Danny has just reserved herself for sadness and frustration when she is unsurprised at hearing the true state of Astapor from the Carthine captain, especially at the restart of Unsullied training. To hear her make the comparisons to Araya, yeah, I made myself say that name again, and this whole idea of whatever she does, just not working, being crushed by this weight of inevitability, is just heartbreaking. She's done things no one else has ever done. She's defeated entire cities and freed thousands of people, but the system just keeps springing back. It is very defeating, and just such a shame to see her in that mood again. Fuck Marine. It is especially tough for her to realise that some of those slaves she has freed are the ones doing the brutalising that we mentioned earlier. How much easier would the world be if you could just categorise them into good and bad? But she's learning it is not that way, and no decision or action she makes can be 100% for the good. Again, it's tough, it's frustrating, and it's weighing heavy. Next quote. The riverside is full of Miranees, begging leave to be allowed to sell themselves to this caffeine. They are thicker than the flies. They want to be slaves. That tough theme continues when Danny learns of the slaves who have technically had their lives worsened by their freeing, which just adds to the frustration of it all. There's just so many layers to everything. Some of it is that amazing, detailed writing by George. Some of it is just more stuff being flung onto the heap for Daenerys. It's demoralising to realise her victory might not be as total or well received as she thought, but admirably, she does not let this distract her and makes some smart decrees about what to do with this particular faction of slaves. Well, smart in the interim at least. Daenerys is also semi-agreeing to becoming part of the slave trade again by taking a tenth file of the sale. She's doing it with noble intentions, she's trying to give these people what they want, but we know full well that some being sold will be forced into it instead of willing, and evil of this nature has a tendency to slowly spread. At least, it's good to see that Danny is incredibly aware of the Stormcrows taking a bunch of the money off the top, and it occurs to me personally that Dario is always, always connected to money or plunder or jewels and whatever he says. It's really sticking out to me in this time around. All of these decisions or troubles are too much for Daenerys to bear alone, so we finally confirm that both Barristan and Jorah are alive, and now we reach the meat of the chapter as Danny decides to deal with them. Sir Barristan walked with his head held high, but Sir Jorah stared at the marble floor as he approached. The one is proud, the other guilty. The old man had shaved off his white beard. He looked ten years younger without it, but her bolding bear looked older than he had. 
Yes, you had best look, guilty Jorah. We've been comparing Jorah and Barristan all through this book, because it's an easy setup. Barristan lied for a true cause, Jorah for his own skin. Barristan is a noble knight, although we will get into that a lot more in dance. Jorah is exiled for Eeyore. And now the comparison is laid before us straight up. It's chalk and cheese. One will rise out of his lower station to take a high place beside his queen. The other is about to go tumbling down, 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 a woesome road of his own making. Danny has spent a whole book dealing with foolish men. She's been stern of them, charmed them, outwitted them, dealt with them. But they were all strangers. It's much harder to work with your friends. And Jorah starts off by towing the line. Look for more of that as we go. But first we complete the logistics puzzle of how the city was won, and specifically what the sewer rats got up to. It's a pretty horrid tale, and I feel bad for Belvas that he had to go along too. He hasn't done any betraying. Still, he didn't seem to mind, and the whole thing worked out. Undeniably, it was a huge part of the victory. Either way, Danny deals with Barristan first, and the old knight doesn't bulk at admitting what he was doing. It's tough to put ourselves in the mind of the first-time reader, discovering for the first time why Barristan hid himself for so long, and also reminding us that Danny had no true idea about Ares at this point. The Mad King has been so indoctrinated to us since the beginning of the series, it's odd to have a character not know about it. And like I said earlier, the madness of Targaryens as a whole is a big theme here. I've never been too sure if I'd buy into that idea. I'm more of the opinion there's madness in every corner, in every family. It's just that we only hear about the ones who have the power to make some evil out of said madness. Perhaps the decades of incest have increased the odds a bit. Certainly, Joffrey makes it seem that way. But I think there's more madness connected to the corruptive power of, well, power, than anything inherited. Here's a quote for you. Most of what she knew of Westeros had come from her brother, and the rest from Sir Jorah. So Barristan would have forgotten more than the two of them had ever known. This man can tell me where I came from. Even in a moment of high emotion, Danny is still smart enough to see true worth, and she's dead on here. Not only is Barristan probably the leading living authority on Targaryen history, short of Grandmaster Pycelle, he's also just shown that he's willing to tell that history true, with none of Jorah's inherent bias. He's an incredible resource, even without the use of arms that he's already proven, and Barristan's dedication and being genuine wins over Danny, as well as the humility he displays by agreeing to be a cook if needs be. He lives only to serve. A lot of theories abound about Barristan's decisions and wins, but this is clearly one of Danny's best decisions yet, and a major moment of victory for Barristan. This has been a long, arduous journey since he was dismissed by Joffrey and Cersei, and it's finally paid off. It is a shame that we don't get to hear the specific words of Barristan's oath, but pretty damn cool to find out he's got all the way from the Red Keep without even touching a sword. Again, huge moment for him, and a really big moment for Danny, where she came on and rediscovering that family history is a huge part of her personality, so this is a pretty big jump in that regard. But then comes the second night, and this is quite a different conversation. That deviation between two nights becomes crystal sharp. Barristan was apologetic, honest, and humble. Draw opts to the offensive, trying to cite why he was right before covering why he was wrong, if at all. And he does it all with a haughty pride, that all this is foolish and he is above such. He comes off as a spoiled child, just as he did years before with his original crime. He hated Eddard Stark, even though he was the one to commit the crime. He doesn't believe he should be punished now, either. He's proud, he's entitled, he's arrogant. Draw disbelieves he's better than everyone else. He's another Joffrey in a smaller pond. Just because he's from the north doesn't exempt him from being a typical lord's son. We can see it in the way he despises being called Varys' creature, even though he clearly was. This rule of exception Jorah applies to himself continues throughout. He brings up Zari and Pyat Pri. Everyone is a snake except for Jorah Mormont, can't you see? Yeah, that's a nice little rhyme for you there. When the conversation turns to the small council meetings and orders by Robert that seemed so long ago, and note the hint that Varys changed the order for Danny to be watched but not harmed to keep his and Illyro's game going, Jorah employs what might be the weakest argument of them all. I, I but suspected. The caravan brought a letter from Varys. He warned me there would be attempts. 
He wanted you watched, yes, but not harmed. He went to his knees. If I had not told them, someone else would have. You know that. Someone would have told, so it might as well have been me so I can get something out of it. Come on, draw it. That You are a moron, but I'd expect you to come up with something better than that. Forgive me. You have to forgive me. Have to? It was too late. He should have begun by begging forgiveness. She could not pardon him, as she'd intended. More of Drawer being uppity. He doesn't come humble like Barristan. He demands. I have to think some of all this relates back to the Ness. We already know he sees her in Daenerys, and I wonder if when it came to finally losing his wife, Jorah did break down and beg, only to be denied and completely lose everything, with his ego taking on some traumatic kicking. Combine that with his entitled noble spirit, and being put in this position by Daenerys is more than he can take. But his attitude and unwillingness to bend, his unwillingness to treat her as the queen she is, seals Danny's decision, however difficult it might be, and however much she might be giving up. And again, it's interesting, her original intentions was just to keep him, get Barristan aside, and, and off we go to Westeros. Next quote from Jorah. I protected you. I fought for you. Killed for you. Kissed me, she thought. Betrayed me. I went down into the sewers like a rat. For you. So that's his one last push. Again, not apologising or being humble, but citing all these things he has done and how he deserves reward. You can feel his bitterness about the sewers being beneath him. He will not accept that he has done any wrong. And again, he never even says sorry. The claim of loving her is the last word he gets out before Daenerys hands down her sentence, and even this is filled with compassion. She knew what she was gaining in Barristan, and knows what she is losing in Jorah. But this is the life of a queen she is learning. That almost every order to try and help matters is going to hurt in some way as well. She even hopes he finds happiness in the home he was willing to sell her out for. Even at her angriest and most hurt, Daenerys is compassionate about her former friend. I must admit I do like the fact that the friendship ends with Daenerys slapping his hand away, denying him that ability to try and take liberties with her once more. It's a big moment for fellow Jorah haters like myself, so I'll take some joy in it. I also see more John comparisons in this ending. It's his time as a ruler, and it makes him send some of his friends away as well, although for very different reasons. But there's that sense of loss and friends and family too. He's gone then. My father and my mother. My brothers. Sir Willem Darry. Drogo, who was my son and stars. His son who died inside me. And now Jorah. Yeah, that quote, that very heavily reminds me of John thinking about Ned, his siblings, and his lost mentors too. It's just another comparison between these two characters. Back in her chambers, Danny begins second-guessing herself, part of the pitfalls of leadership, and coincidentally, when we get our first mention of Jorah's book gifts for the first time in two volumes of The Song of Ice and Fire. But she also finds some comfort and strength in her dragons when it comes to decision-making time, just as John will do with Ghost. Before we reach the end of this chapter, Browston reappears and shows off that worth that we discussed earlier as an essential Targaryen holocron. Unsurprisingly, given the day she's had, Danny chooses to ask about madness, but both her and Barristan stop short of having a proper conversation, and George goes into major tease mode and has us all gripping our books all the more intensely. And again, that's another symbol of the five-year gap that, in theory, they'd have five years to start talking about this thing and we can leave it for a chapter, but uh, we'll have to wait. The air was chilly, but she liked the feel of grass between her toes and the sound of the leaves whispering to one another. Wind ripples chased each other across the surface of the little bathing pool and made the moon's reflection dance and shimmer. The chapter, and Danny's storm arc, closes with a scene of beautiful writing in George, a real sense of tranquility and peace to match Danny's inner turmoil and frustration. She sits, contemplating Marine, and makes her choice. As we find out the following morning, it's a choice not based on herself or hubris or climbing the eternal ladder, it's based on the idea of making all of this worth something. Conquering cities and claiming victories and travelling the whole world isn't worth it for Metal Chair alone. She wants it all to mean something to the people she is supposedly protecting. She wants to effect real change in the world instead of commercial victories and plunder. And I have to say, I love her for it. Do I love that she stays a Marine? 
No, I don't. I think it's a bit of a curse, and I hate the effect it has on her during dance. But I adore her reasoning. She is a true, caring leader, one of the few actually worthy of the title that we get at the end. What will you do then, Khaleesi? asked Rakhara. Stay, she said. Rule, and be a queen. Again, the parallels to John's ending that we've yet to come to are outstanding. Daenerys was forced to make a choice of whether to chase her perceived birthright and go after what she herself wants, the glory at the end of the rainbow, yet chooses duty instead, chooses to serve instead. And like John, it will send her down an incredibly difficult path of trying to do the right thing and finding many different roadblocks along the way. Some that will have her questioning the decision made here in this chapter, and some that will have her throwing off the shackles of said decision, as John does at the end of his dance arc. But that is also very far away, and it hits me hard this is the last we will see of Daenerys for some time. This is the first of the huge gaps we have coming to our podcast for our big three of Tyrion, Jon and Daenerys, or even though Jon does actually sneak into a Sam chapter of Feast for Crows. For the other two, we have this massive wait while we get through Feast to rejoin Daenerys, and though this is also true of the Bran and Davos arcs we've already finished, it just doesn't bear the same weight. And like I said at the top of this chapter, this conclusion has five-year gap written all over it. Danny even flat out says she needs time. What a 21-year-old Danny with five years of queenship under her belt would have looked like, we might never know, to say nothing of how big the dragons would have been. But we can look forward to the fact that once we meet her again, we'll be getting plenty of Danny chapters. It's just damn annoying we have to wait, but there we go. And though this chapter is difficult, hinting at all the challenges rule will bring, let's focus on the positives. Even if it hurts, getting rid of Jorah is a good thing, a brilliant thing. Gaining Barristan is also good. Freeing three cities worth of slaves, beginning to change the mindset of a whole part of the world, is ringed with details, true, but it's also good. Daenerys is remarkable in every aspect of the word during this book, and her arc is generally one of Storm's biggest strengths, however sparse the chapters. I'm so glad we got to see many of her best qualities on display throughout. It's super, super stuff, and I bow down to our queen. There you go, everybody. That is Daenerys 6. That is a part 15 of 17 of the Storm of Swords, and that's our episode for today. Let me quickly take you through next week's chapters, back to 5. We've got Jamie 9, which is full of Brienne and Cersei, yet again. John 10, where the battle for the wall is resolved. Aya 13, which is her last. Sam 4, where Sam returns to a very different Castle Black. And John 11, where John receives an offer. So we've got all that to come. You've got another Sporkle Spectacular some point this week, probably the weekend. Patrons have another little extra bonus, just a short one, coming in their feeds pretty soon, hopefully midweek. And we've all got the end of Storm of Swords coming. Like I said at the beginning, every chapter is just 10 out of 10 at this point. We're really really into it everything is just so important some of the biggest some of the biggest events of song of ice and fire happening right here and well i'll talk about that more next time i suppose thank you for joining us everybody thank you for listening and your sharing and your downloads and everything else don't hesitate to get in touch with me on twitter at sir buckley or email islandfacespodcast at gmail.com or you can have a look at our patreon if you would like to do so stay safe out there stay smart hope everybody's healthy like I say, we'd be glad to hear of you and keep up the good fight. We will see you next time. <laughs>